morning and welcome to Wanda's Picks, the Black Arts and Culture Program of the African Sisters Media Network. That was Afro Blue, John Coltrane's Afro Blue, um, interpreted and rearranged by Anthony Brown Orchestra. And we are joined in the studio by Parnell Herbert um, and... Kenneth Cooper, and we're going to be joined by some other people uh, today, this morning, uh, in a special sixth anniversary of Hurricane Katrina and the subsequent flooding that happened in New Orleans when the levees broke. Uh, Good morning, gentlemen. How are you? All right. Good morning, Wanda. Thank you for having me on the show. Oh, good morning, good morning. Yeah, I wanted to get you on before things kicked off there because there's a lot of stuff happening. Uh, maybe we'll start with the announcements first, just in case we have some listeners that are tuning in, you know, in New Orleans and in the Gulf. So, um, Herb, why don't you tell us about anything that's going on that people want might want to uh, attend or become involved in, and then, Kenneth, you can add to the list. What are you doing today? Okay. Uh, yeah, I'll start off by that thanks to Biggie is the uh, African American Leadership Project. You got at the foot of the Danziger Bridge, where we're going to go out and have a candlelight vigil at 6:30 uh, p.m. There's going to be a candlelight vigil where the people will make a demand to the city to change the name from Danziger Bridge to Madison. I believe Madison Brissett. Uh, the names of the two murder victims up in New Orleans Police Force. Um, uh, before that, they've been out before that 5.30, there's uh, an event, a protest event at McDonald number 35 High School uh, where they're demanding you know, better treatment for students and you know, all the different things that's going on in the city uh, since uh, the aftermath of Hurricane Katrina. Those are the two that I'm well I'm aware of others, but I can't remember where they all are. I've got them all on my email. I need to go back and check so I can set up my itinerary for the rest of the day. So, Kenneth, if you'll pick it up from there, I'm done. Yeah, I'll definitely be out there um, by the band singer tonight. I didn't know about the um, thing at 35. I actually graduated from McDonald's 35, and um, I might try to uh, go to that. Uh, so I have let me interrupt. I, mean, I said that wrong. It's not 35. It's John Mack, John McDonald. Oh, at John Mack. Yeah, at a recent, yes, um, at one of Mayor Landrieu's recent budget town hall meetings, they had a representative from John Mack who was complaining about the conditions, saying they have no air conditioning in the gym. They only have two security guards. So, you know, down here with no AC, that's probably pretty rough. So I'm sure that'll be something interesting to check out. I know, I remember Juan Blatt. Friday, you mentioned there's a second line, some uh, some kind of commemoration down there by the Ninth War Levy and across the canal. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, there is. Um, let me find that announcement. Yeah, this it's like the sixth annual um, commemorative march. And it was really interesting that they didn't know about the uh, African American Leadership Council. I'm like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and so um, uh, it's, it's fragmented. New Orleans is a very fragmented city. I uh, I've only been back home fragmented. back to New Orleans. <laughs> yeah, I've only been yes, I'm here. I've, I've moved back to New Orleans, and uh, it's only been a short period. I'm saying it's been a few months now, but I go to lots of different meetings because I make it 
my, my make a point to go out to these meetings to see what's going on in the city. And I'm looking at the right hand, not knowing what the left hand is doing, and the finger not knowing what the thumb is doing. There's a lot of stuff going on in the city, a lot of positive work that's going on in the city, but the people are they're disengaged. And I, as a community organizer, am working with other people trying to bring this stuff together, trying to bring it all into one big picture so everybody can see what's going on and uh, and we can come together. And instead of doing well, in this case, it's not bad to have a lot of different things going on because we can you know, attract different people in different communities. People would not normally go out to the Danziger Bridge, they show up at John Mack, some may show up at the march below the canal. So that's not a bad thing. But we should know what's going on in our city. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Well, hopefully they're tuned in to the show and they're listening now. Um, so with regards to the 6th Annual New Orleans Katrina Commemoration March 2nd line, uh, it's at 10 a.m. Uh, today. And the theme this year is In Loving Memory of Lost Loved Ones. And um, the organizers are uh, Ms. Glover and Mr. Uh, Warren. Uh, of the New Orleans Katrina Commemoration Foundation, and their phone number is 504-328-3159, um, 504-328-3159, and then they have another, they have a, uh, oh, that's a fax number, that's the office number, and they're, uh, they have a Facebook, uh, their website is katrinacommemoration.org, and their email is Katrina Commemoration at email dot com. I mentioned Friday that they didn't get back to me, but they got back to me. <laughs> uh, so, so anyway, so that email works, but I'd probably call them um, just because they're just so busy, and today is the day. But the commemoration starts at the Lower Ninth Ward Levee Breach, located at Jordan Road and North Galvez Avenue, across the Industrial Canal. And following the Levee Breach healing ceremony, the March Second Line begins at ten forty-five. And then the March 2nd line is going to move down St. Claude Avenue to Hunter's Field on the corner of North Claiborne Avenue and St. Bernard Avenue. At 1 p.m. at Hunter's Field, they'll have the commemoration program, including community speakers and activists, local musicians, hip-hop artists, and spoken word. So, um, again, that's the 6th annual Katrina commemoration. Sounds really great. Uh, I don't know if you all are going to be able to fit into your schedules, but... um, yeah, uh, I think it definitely sounds like it's going to be uh, a really wonderful event, and particularly since it's their sixth annual. I think we've been joined in the studio by Tracy Washington. Is that correct? Is this Hello. Hi, is this Miss Washington? Yes. Okay, hi. You're on the air with uh, Parnell Herbert and Kenneth Cooper. Glad to have you on the air with us. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. We're just talking right now about uh, what you plan on doing today, uh, any particular events that you want to let us know about, uh, anything that you're organizing at the uh, Louisiana Justice Institute that you want to plug right now for folks that are listening and trying to put together the itinerary? No, nothing today. I think I'm going to be attending a couple of events that are um, that had already been planned by other organizations. I know the African-American um, Leadership Project has an event um, at the Danzinger Bridge, mm-hmm. and um, I, I, I suspect I'll be attending that. And then there's an education uh, rally 
this, this evening at John McDonough High School, and I'll be attending that. Okay, but, yeah, um, mm-hmm. yeah um, uh, the, the, um, the number of events has, has diminished, you know, over the years. And, and mm-hmm. that, may, that may not be such a bad thing, but um, as many, it appears. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, let me introduce you all properly. Um, let's, uh, <laughs> uh, Herb, uh, I, when I introduce you Friday um, in this really brief, uh, short, um, over-the-phone <laughs> bio that you dictated to me, um, you know, you mentioned that um, you were working um, with uh, the Louisiana Justice Institute uh uh, which is directed by Tracy Washington, whom we're speaking to now. And uh, you're also a member of the Coalition of Free the Angola Three. And you are uh, a contributor to the book Overcoming Katrina by uh, Deanne Penner and Dr. Keith C. Ferdinand. But I thought I remember that you're a veteran, too. Is that correct? Uh, yes, ma'am. I'm a, I'm a Navy veteran, uh, three-time Vietnam vet. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's back... Uh, a few years ago, yeah, I, I did my four and got out. Uh, and even, you know, even that, uh, wind up, I've done some things in my life I'm going to be proud of, I'm not so proud of, but uh, everything I've done is what made me who I am today. Mm-hmm. So with that, you know, in hindsight, being a Vietnam vet is not necessarily something that I'm very proud of, but it's not something I'm ashamed of. Mm-hmm. Uh, Vietnam War is something that I feel like I fought on the wrong side. Not only did I fight on the wrong side, but I was fighting the wrong war. There was a war going on here in the 60s that I should have been home to fight as opposed to the one that I went over there to fight. But, yes, I am a a veteran also. Mm -hmm. Right, right, and a father. I don't know if you're a grandfather, too, but you're a father, too, right? A father and grandfather. I've got two (laughs) granddaughters and... uh, I went back to Alicia and Amani because I'm going to go into the archives and play this for them. So I want to give them a shout-out to Alicia and Amani and my children, uh, Todd and Shawan. Mm-hmm. <laughs> wonderful. And, uh, Kenneth, you're joining us again. Um, so wonderful to have you in the studio. Uh, you are just such a repository of, sort of what's going on in New Orleans uh, proper and all the different areas of, of, of um, activity uh, whether it's political or, you know, community activism uh, or environment or arts and culture. You know, you're like you're the journalist that's got like sort of um, a beat, a, pul- a finger in all the different beats or pulses. So that's really wonderful. Uh, so Kenneth Cooper is an independent writer and longtime resident of New Orleans. He recently graduated from the University of New Orleans in 2008 with a degree in English, and his work has been published in the New Orleans Review, the Alternate, Sync 504, and New Orleans Examiner, and he's got lots of great articles in the New Orleans Examiner, particularly around the uh, the trial that just ended, um, uh, which is the the, uh, the bridge references and the renaming ceremony today references. Uh, and uh, Kenneth is also a father of a young artist, right? Yeah, a daughter. She's nine, and a son who's sixteen. Oh, oh wow. Okay. Both nice. born on Valentine's Day, too. Believe it or not. They're born the same day. The same day, Valentine's Day. <laughs> wow. Was that planned like that? Did you all? How did you do that? Did, was that intentional? <laughs> no, it was. 
the coincidence, the strength. <laughs> <that's> the coincidence. <laughs> well, that's the brokest day of the year for me. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah, probably the most wonderful, too. Uh, Tracy Washington, oh, my goodness. Uh, you're the president and CEO at Louisiana Justice Institute, uh, which is located in the greater New Orleans area. And um, uh, in the past, you were director of the NAACP Gulf Coast Advocacy Center and director of the Gulf Coast Advocacy Center at NAACP. Uh, you're an independent professional at Tracy L. Washington um, APLC. Uh, you uh, Education includes um, the University of Texas Law School, a school of law, uh, Drake University, Carleton College, and um, the um, Louisiana Justice Institute is a nonprofit legal advocacy organization de- devoted to fostering social justice campaigns across the state of Louisiana. Uh, LJI understands that as a local civic rights civil rights organization, it can and must serve as an agent for social change. The creation of LJI was responsive to a specific and urgent need to resurrect capacity of statewide systematic legal advocacy on behalf of impoverished communities and communities of color. Uh, LJI believes a community-shared vision of for social justice combined with opportunity and resolve to bring lasting change will produce genuine, equitable recovery in Louisiana. And you specialize there in education, housing, voting rights, criminal justice, health care equity, worker rights, and equitable economic development. And I'm looking for a website for people that might want to get in touch with you all. Uh, could you give it, please? Sure. It's um, www.louisianajusticeinstitute.org. Okay. Great. And is there a phone number? Five zero four eight seven two nine one three four. Okay, super. Why don't we start with you? Um, uh, where were you um, six years ago on uh, August twenty ninth? And um, you know, looking back over the ensuing years, um, uh, you know, talk about you know your your work and and how the um, what happened, this natural disaster and the man-made disaster in New Orleans impacted, you know, who you are and your work you do today? We'll start with That's you. That's Uh-huh. Okay. Um, well, six years ago I was here uh, in New Orleans, and, um, uh, you know, left the city after the storm, uh, evacuated um, later, to Texas and then returned, um, thinking that I would stay temporarily, but ultimately uh, was convinced and didn't need much convincing that uh, New Orleans was a place that I needed to uh, stay. So in, in December, basically December 2005, um was back permanently. Uh, and, you know, just like so many people who were back were trying to survive in a city where there weren't many services available, um, but saw how disproportionately that lack of social um, infrastructure really affected um, marginalized folks, folks that were marginalized prior to Katrina, 
poor folk and and people of color, regardless of their um, their wealth, uh, began working with other organizers, namely um, Bill Quigley, um, Curtis Muhammad, and Deisha Jukali, to um, try to right some wrongs, and that included work on public housing. Um, Charity Hospital reopening, getting the schools reopened, and and trying to get access to education, equitable education to um, uh, equitable education services for for children, and we're still struggling with that. Um, although our criminal justice system is horribly broken now, it was. Um, it was just in a state of shambles um, right after Katrina. We had uh, folks um, still in jail in um, March who had been arrested in August for, you know, urinating in the French Quarter on the weekend before Katrina. And um, so we were dealing with some Sixth Amendment issues. And, and so that, that, that work, which was not work that I'd done prior to Katrina Wanda was the work that um, I sort of embarked on with friends afterwards. So are you a New Orleans native? Yes. Okay, okay. So um, how were you personally impacted from the flooding? Did you lose any property? Did your, How was your family affected? In the scheme of things, we did all right, you know. Um, look, I, it's it's tough to complain when you know that there are people still struggling to get home, mm-hmm. and that's really the fight right now for those folks who are still wanting to get back to the city of New Orleans, who've not, who've had just all types of institutional barriers put up, you know, be it HUD, uh, be it road home, or just because you're you're settled in a city and you're just trying to wait for your kids to get out of school, but you you desperately want to get back to New Orleans. You know, we've just we've got to find the way home instead of the road home. You know, a, a way home for folks, and and uh, so and that's tough. Mhm. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Here in California, we have a lot of. Uh, Katrina survivors that live here now, both north, northern and southern California. I'm in the northern part of California. And yesterday we had our annual Katrina report back fundraiser and uh, raised, raised a couple of hundred dollars uh, to send to Common Ground Health Clinic and Life of Mississippi. And one of our um, speakers, uh, Cece Campbell Rock, she um, lives in Northern California, her husband is in New Orleans, and so she's been They're raising their children. Hmm? Oh, you They're know, friends of mine. Oh, oh, okay, so you so you saw Cece recently when she was just there. Yeah. Right, right. She's, so you know the you know the situation about her house, how um, they lost it to taxes, but even didn't even know it that they didn't have their house. And her husband was working on a house, and they don't even own it anymore. Um, did you know you knew about that then, right? Um, I just got a, a a message from her in in that regard. Mhm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They sent the notification somewhere where they weren't, and uh, and then took the house because of back taxes and was three hundred dollars. But they're going to be able to to get the house because you have three years to respond. But this is the third year. 
So what if she wouldn't have seen whatever it was? Um, right. Notification. She would. They. She would have lost. They would have lost their house. It's. It's still. See you. I mean, you've touched on one of the barriers, and one of the problems. The, and and folks who desperately want to come home, we need to figure out a way home for them. Yes, yeah, certainly. Um, uh, Parnell, um, why don't you why don't you talk about um, for our audience, sort of, um, you know, you've already done this, but you can do it again. Sort of where you were six years ago, and you know, you have had a journey because you just recently returned to New Orleans. So tell us about that journey, and then also um, you can touch on you know what happened. You know, to those of us, those of our residents that are incarcerated, because you, yet yeah, last week you were on your way to visit Zulu, um, who is uh, at Angola State Prison, and and that was a real, that was really horrible. What happened to the people that were incarcerated? They were just left to drown. And similar yeah. things are happening in New York with Hurricane Irene in, in Rikers. They're not evacuating those men. I think it's just men who are incarcerated there. So there's like. There's a parallel and a repeat of history. Sure, and and you would assume, Wanda, that uh, they would learn from our mistakes. You know, things that was done in, in New Orleans six years ago, the world watched, the world saw what was going on, saw what we were going through, and saw what was done right as well as what was done wrong. So Rikers Island, uh, the state of New York, they should have should know better, you know, and. Maybe they did know better and don't want to do better. Um, so that's it. Uh, yeah, I left New Orleans the day before, and fortunately I did because uh, my house was was flooded. Uh, water was up to the roof of my house. It was like 14, 14 feet of water in my block. I've got an, uh, a house with eight-foot ceilings. The house is elevated four feet off the ground. And uh, water touched the, the roof. Um, my sister and I left uh, New Orleans the day before and drove out to Virginia, where my son and my two granddaughters were. While en route, uh, we spent the night in, in Atlanta and uh, woke up the next day, continued on to, to Virginia. And we laughed at each other because on the radio we heard that Katrina hit New Orleans as a Category 3, and neither of us had ever uh, evacuated before. But because this was a Category 5 that was going to completely engulf the city, we we, got, we left. And it's because, not because either of us wanted to, but because our other family members just insisted. They were insistent, I mean, over and over again. They were calling and demanding and requesting and crying and begging. So we left, uh, and we did. But uh, when we got to Virginia, I walked in the door, and my son said, Dad, I'm sorry about what's happening to New Orleans. I said, it was no big deal, man. It's, you know, just another hurricane. He said, no, I'm talking about the flooding. And that's when I heard about the flooding. and went in and looked at it on TV, and I saw them pouring the water into our city. Um I stayed in Virginia for a couple of weeks, and my oldest brother Clifford in San Diego, he said he's uh, California, so I was folk in California. My brother sent tickets for my sister and I to come out to San Diego. 
Uh, we went out there and we got met my nephew, who had also got a ticket for. And uh, we stayed there uh, maybe a couple of months. And then it got to the point where it was time for everyone to decide what they wanted to do with the rest of their lives. And I knew what I wanted to do. I wanted to stay in San Diego. I had neither the intent nor the desire to come back to New Orleans. Um, in the interim, I kept receiving phone calls and emails from, from comrades and colleagues who were telling me that in uh, Houston, our people were struggling. There was over 100,000 uh, New Orleanians in Houston, and they were not receiving the, the treatment that the good treatment that the world thought they were, and they needed organizers and people to help uh, help our people navigate the system there. So en route back back on my house in New Orleans, I stopped in Houston. Everything looked cool. Went to New Orleans, jumped in the car the same day, a different car, and rode back to Houston. And then I got involved and I saw what was going on. And it was uh, it was pretty rough. You know, one of the things that that I found in Houston, our people occupied thirty six thousand dwelling units in Houston, Texas, and uh, they were not being treated very well. And I had opportunities to speak before the mayor, city council, different groups and organizations, and I explained to them uh, these thirty six thousand units we moved into. You didn't have to evict any Houston families because these places were vacant. These were places that uh, had been condemned and, and abandoned. And they, what they did was they threw a coat of paint on them and moved the New Orleanians in. So our people had to deal with the mold and mildew that eventually bled through the paint. And uh, so it was a serious struggle there. So I, I dealt with that for over five years. Uh, helping people deal with the system of trying to point them in the right direction. And uh, I guess towards the end of that five years, well, originally I was getting four or five calls a day from New Orleans. I don't even know how my number got out there, but it was out there. And people were calling, and you know, we were doing the work. But towards the end, a few months ago, I started noticing that I would get like two or three calls a week. So I felt like my work was done in Houston, and at this time I was getting calls and emails about stuff going on in the city, and uh, I felt like it was time for me to come back to New Orleans to pick up where we had left off before. So that's basically my Katrina story, Wanda. <laughs> yeah. So you would also, um, you know, come back and forth to New Orleans while you were in the diaspora and um what how do you what do you see as um some of the greatest needs um you know like sort of I mean you're working with the Justice Institute I'm sure for a reason uh and when one looks at sort of the presenting uh I guess you know sort of what should we address first, second, third and things like that. What uh what do you, what are your type top three? Well, uh, I think education, I think, would be top. Well, let's back up. Housing would be number one. Hmm. Education and justice. Mm -hmm. And and it's hard to put them in any particular order, Mm -hmm. 
because, you know, who wants to come back to live in a city with no justice? You know, we have police running rampant in the city, and now that Department of Justice is there. They're, uh, they're trying to make it appear that they're cleaning up their act. Uh, so they're, they're not uh, as wide open as they were. You don't see the stuff that we saw. People are not being murdered on a regular basis by the New Orleans police force the way they were. So I believe we, we kind of have a handle on the justice issue, at least to the point where our people don't have to be afraid of being murdered by the police. So the next in line would be uh, housing, which some partners tracy said to uh, to get back into their home and education. You know, once you're back home, you need a place for your kids to be educated. And we've got lots of issues with the education system in New Orleans. Mm-hmm. And so those, I think, would be my top three. Right, right. I want to um, uh, before you make your comments, Kenneth. I want to uh, introduce um, Cece Camarock. Hey, Cece, thanks for joining us this morning. Hi, Wanda. Thanks for inviting me. Hello, Pernell. Hi, Miss Tracy. And hi, Dan. How you doing? Well, I just came back from New Orleans. I was down there, and I'm telling you what. I am, you know, I've got to go see the doctor now because what I found down there, what I experienced, just just in July is just another whole horror story. I thought, you know, Katrina was behind us. I haven't been home since 2007. The rebuilding would begin, and I was very optimistic in 2007 with what I saw. But, oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. And I was trying to reach Tracy. I think, Tracy, I wrote to you on your, your Facebook account because the Justice Institute, Institute is going to have to get involved in this land grab and this gentrification that's going on. I mean, it is ridiculous. When I came home, and it's only God's work that I came home at the time that I did, because the property roads were opened and you can go, you know, the assessments, the new assessments were coming out, so you can go and dispute the assessment. So I said, well, you know, Tracy knows that I had been struggling with my mom's property, opening up succession and trying to open it. I did that. That was one reason I was there. So I go down to City Hall to see, you know, because that is blighted because, of course, I don't have any money to get it fixed. Well, I got a road home story about that, so that's finally coming through. But anyway, I get down there. The City Hall is lined on both sides of the aisle, and I went for three days straight, by the way, with people that look like us disputing these higher property taxes. And in the midst of getting down there and doing that, I checked on my own property, my own house, you know, my primary resident, found out that in 2008 it had been sold for $300. My husband has steadily been going back and forth because, you know, he's a carpenter, back and forth to fix the house. He's down there now. He'll come up here and stay at Dublin, California. He'll come up here and stay six months go there and stay six months and come back and forth. And they, the, the city sent us one notice in 2008, and we were not even back to the city at the time. So, I mean, that is one thing. How many other people have found themselves in that situation? Now, because we lost a homestead exemption, because we you know, were not there to ha- handle that, uh, the g- guy who bought our house for $300 you know, has been paying taxes on it, 
Now we're going to have to give this man $5,000 to get our property back. So, I mean, the people whose properties have been leveled, the people who are in the condition that I was in where I, you know, I didn't get any proper notice. And, of course, they're going to say, well, we couldn't find you, blah, 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 blah. Oh, yeah, you could find me. You could have found me through FEMA, the list that FEMA had. As a matter of fact, I have the list of the people in the Bay Area and all over California because I've worked with the community recovery with Lutheran uh, Social Services. I, I ran that program. So I need to do something about that. I mean, we're going to scrape up the money to pay this guy, but how many other residents and homeowners are in the situation that we're in? This is bad. And then they're going to run the streetcar. Hello? Yeah. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah. Then they're going to run the streetcar down St. Claude Avenue, you know, and also I hear on the Legion Fields. I mean, they are on the gentrification uh, train so hard. I walked down St. Claude Avenue. I saw new businesses, and everybody knows. You guys know how long St. Claude Avenue has been shut down and dormant, even when the whole city was there, you know. So this is uh, this is bad. This is bad. This this land grab. I heard of a land grab, but I never knew. It was just intense. And what I want you, the Justice Institute, to do, Tracy, is to sue the city of New Orleans because when your property taxes come up, they want you to pay it in one lump sum. My taxes have gone through the roof. You know, I know I'm going to get recover some of that money back because we're going to get the homestead exemption back. But how many people are in my situation where the taxes are through the roof, they either know it or they don't know it, they can't afford to pay it, and they go to the tax sale? I mean, even the IRS gives you a a payment plan. So there's something wrong with that. There's something, there's something not only is it unjust, but as far as I'm concerned, it's, it's, it's a legal crime. You know, it's legal, but it's, a, it's criminal and it's sinful. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I agree. So that's why I was trying to reach you because I will be the plaintiff. You know, I'll, I'll come down there and file in pro se if I have to. But that's the most ridiculous. And they've been having it like that for years. This is not just a Mitch Landrew thing. It's been like that. You had to pay all your property tax. You cannot pay a part of it. Well, so I think that that's foul, very foul. Yeah, that's that's that, that, that be. That definitely needs to be addressed, CC. And I, I run into Raymond a few times here. Mm-hmm. Uh, in fact, the first time I ran to him was at the mosque. We both were, were there, and he told me that he was home working on his place. And he called me one night. We just talked on the phone, uh, kind of rehashed things. I hadn't seen him since then, but I'm going to have to give my brother a call because we hadn't even discussed all the stuff that, that you're telling us right now. And, and yours, uh, CC, is. Is one of many, as you said, it's one of many horror stories that people are dealing with in New Orleans. And they put it out there to the media like all is well. And, and I put it out quickly. You know, New Orleans is the tale of two cities. You've got yes, uh, people who are doing well, and you've got people who are struggling to survive. What well, is this ethnic cleansing on the legal tip, you know? And that's ridiculous. Right. That's ridiculous because that that city's always been predominantly African American. As a matter of fact, if you go back to the founding of the colony, you had three times as many black people than people of other races, and that's where the black codes came from. So when that guy, whatever his name was, from when that little town said what um, what God what what we couldn't do, God did. He was he, yeah. he had stayed a mouthful. 
Yeah. Tracy, you remember that guy's name? He was a congressman. Uh, I can't remember. That wasn't Meloso, huh? No, that wasn't Meloso. I, I can't even remember. No, I don't think I that was Charlie Meloso. Huh? I said, no, I don't think it was Charlie Meloso. I remember the quote, but I can't remember who it was either. I got a mental block over that. We all what? have many mental blocks since then. Yeah, what's the quote again? The quote was, what we couldn't do, God did for us, uh, meaning get rid of the black people out of New Orleans so they could redentrify it. Because remember, initially the talk was, when, why should we rebuild uh, the Ninth Ward? It's gonna, just going to flood again, you know. Well, then why should why should we re- rebuild anything? Why should we rebuild Mississippi? You didn't hear him say that. <laughs> you know? That's all I'm talking about. I'm just saying the racism and the discrimination is a rampant. We have now what, Tracy? A third reconstruction going on, or is the fourth one? I don't know, but something's got to give. Mm-hmm. Um, Kenneth, um, I, we uh, haven't you haven't had a chance to talk about uh, where you were, um, and also any comments with regards to uh, what CC uh, and any of the other panelists have talked about so far. Oh. Six years ago, me and my family, my wife and two kids, we evacuated to Shreveport. Well, actually, Bossier City, which is right outside of Shreveport. Mm-hmm. And we stayed there until October. While the storm was going on, we sat in the hotel and watched it all on TV. I remember the morning of the storm. I think the national news was down here, and they were in the French Quarter. And um, I think like at about 6 or 7 o'clock, since the French Quarter was fine, they had declared... Um, that New Orleans had been spared by Katrina, I guess. As far as they're concerned, it was all over with. And it wasn't until like two hours later we started hearing all these reports about levees being breached, and we just sat there watching water just gush into the city. And um, it wasn't, like I said, it wasn't until October that we came back, and I'm sure as everyone remember, it was a mess. It was just moldy, stinky. It was just a completely, you know, wrecked city. And after that... You know, it's been a slow return, like they've been saying. Some people have been fortunate enough to be able to come back, while a lot of people haven't been. Just a drive around the city, you'll see it going from neighborhood to neighborhood. You can tell the neighborhoods that are actually being invested in as opposed to the ones that are not. Like my mother's area in Gentilly, it's just you coming back, it's all your hard work on your own. It seems like the city is either standing in your way or not helping you because you can go through a neighborhood and there'll be like one neighborhood, like a block where it's just all houses fixed up and it looks just like it did before and you'll go two blocks down and it's just a house, a lot full of weeds, uh, a house and abandoned houses. It's just scattered. It's not the same, I guess, cohesive city that it once was. But once I got back... um, that's when I started writing, paying attention, and, you know, just publishing articles wherever I could. And that's what I've been doing ever since, just observing the whole recovery process. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what Wanda, what you- I just wanted to give you an answer to your question. Everybody was going on and mm-hmm. having mental blocks, but it was um, Richard <laughs> Baker from Texas. It was Richard who? Richard Baker, Congressman Richard Baker. Richard Baker oh. From Texas. Oh, oh, that was him. Mm-hmm. Ah, okay. Hmm. Yeah, because I know there so, was um, another time historically in uh, New Orleans when there was a big flood and the black people were 
they had to stay, and they were put on this island of some sort, and if they left, they would get killed because they didn't want the black population to leave because they needed them to work. Do you know what I'm referencing? Yeah, Wanda, uh, that's the uh, blood, I believe, of 1929. Okay. And that's why we say, uh, that's why I say they blooded us out because they have a history of doing that. Mm-hmm. In 1929, they did it. 1965, they did it with Hurricane Bessie. Mm-hmm. But uh, in 29, when the city was flooded out, they were considering dispersing people the way they did this time. But they felt that if they allowed their blacks to leave, they wouldn't come back. They would get outside New Orleans where we're stuck in this, this time warp because you don't know of anything else. You think this is the way people live, so you're going to stay here. But once you get outside here and you see there's, there's a free world out there, no one would want to come back. So what they did was they decided to house the people on the levees because the levees didn't necessarily break. Uh, the levees were there, so and, and they built tents and, and camps on the levees for the black people to live in until the water receded and they can go back into the city and work for white people again. Mm-hmm. Right, right, yeah, yeah. Um, um, okay. No, go ahead. No, 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 I, I was... Um, I, didn't have to I, was about to, I was about to say, I guess this time they didn't have to worry about us since they had a lot of um, Spanish labor, so I guess they really wasn't worried about us sticking around this time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, I believe this time we weren't necessarily wanted back. Uh, yeah. It, you, know, you know, because black people have come to the point where we've joined unions and, and we want to get paid decent wages and we want to make demands and want to be treated humanely. Um, and because we've gotten to this point, this arrogant point in our lives, um, they don't need us anymore. So they went out and found some new workers who would be happy to work for what we don't want to work for, what we consider inhumane wages. They um, they found and we couldn't people. even make a living off of probably. Right. Yeah. And I'm going to back out uh, because I know Tracy hasn't spoken much, and I know Wanda, you uh, had some specific stuff you want to ask about legalities, right? Yeah, yeah. I'm I'm interested in uh in some of the legislation that has come out of the state of Louisiana around uh around Katrina survivors, uh, with regards to resources to fix their homes, resources to return home because they like I said, you know, there are a lot of people that are not in New Orleans anymore that don't that want to be in New Orleans. And also I was wondering about uh, right after the storm, there were a lot of children that were separated from their families, elders that were separated from family. I was wondering, has everything, everyone been accounted for? Like, are there, because you know how you would pass by those houses and they would have those symbols on there, so many found dead or so many whatever. And I was wondering, um, are there any children, are there any unaccounted for persons still? And uh, yeah, and then uh, another thing, and you could answer whichever part of this you like or all of it. Uh, I remember when um, Congresswoman Cynthia McKinney hosted uh, some testimony. It was like a congressional hearing, and people were telling their stories about what happened during Katrina. And I think maybe it might have been 
three or four years ago. I don't think it was five years ago. And I was wondering what happened with all of that that information and if legislators are using that or have they plans do they have plans to use that to structure a more um equitable response to this disaster that's continuing. Tracy? Tracy, yeah. <laughs> okay, we may have lost Tracy. Uh, let me let me see. Uh, uh, yeah, we did lose her. <laughs> okay, so um, yeah. So does anyone know the answer to the question? Cece, uh, Cece Campbell Rock is um, is a journalist, writer, activist, and she's been really holding it down with some other Katrina survivors here in Northern California. Just being the point person for organizing resources for people that are here in in the San Francisco Bay Area, um, to to the exclusion of you know of her own personal um, uh, you know work to make sure that you know her family can return home. So yeah, she's certain to be applauded, and I think both of your children finished high school here. And both of them are in college now, and you know you're, you know you're a, a married single mother because of Katrina. Right. That's exactly right, and it's just been totally ridiculous. I mean, we decided, and Parnell knows what we did down there. My husband and I on the education front, and he was in it too. But we decided because we knew the under sad sorrow, sorry underbelly, racist underbelly of that whole privatization of public school movement and the way they were treating our children. We didn't want our children to come there and have to deal with rebuilding a city and the stench, as, as Kenneth said, and everything else, and, and then be mistreated in education or not get a good education. So I, my husband and I decided, well, I'd stay out here, let the kids finish school, because one, um, one was 15 and the other was 13, and then I'll return home. So that's where we are now. I'm in the process of getting them stable housing. They're both in college. You know, they still live with mom. <laughs> My daughter's had a baby in the interim, so mama's the babysitter. But mama's coming back. I am definitely coming back. And I've set my goal to come back next summer, God spare life. But, yeah, as as you've said, Wanda, you know, we had, when I first came up here, I was with the San Francisco Bayview newspaper, and then I went on to work with Hurricane Evacuees Council of the Bay Area. And, you know, I'm still partially involved, but, you know, I had to turn around and deal with my kids. But my point is, you know, they don't want to come home. Well, at least my daughter doesn't want to come home. My son is going to go to school for uh, video programming. My daughter's just gotten into school, and she's, political science or whatever she wants to do. She keeps changing it every day. But I want to come home. I mean, you know, this is enough is enough for me. Uh, and when I came home in July, as I said, I came down there for a vacation and enjoy Essence. And that just, when I went through this thing with, with the assessment and the house, I'm like, I think I'm going to have to come back a little sooner because, you know, and that's why I was trying to get Tracy and the, and and you guys uh, print out at the Justice Institute because how many other people are going to say, well, we couldn't contact them, we couldn't find them, these homeowners, and these people are having a land grab out of the out of your mind. I heard about a, uh, an organization on the radio locally, and I, I'm going to ask Pernell, 
you know, I asked you to give me his number off there because I need to ask about him, the LordNinthWard.org. Are you familiar with them? No, I'm huh? not, but what I will do, what I will do, CC, uh, I'll research that by you, and I'll get in touch with you through Wanda and get that information yeah. for you. Oh, no, I I heard it on the radio. Here's some some blue-eyed soul girl talking about, oh, well, you know, we have a little less than a half a million dollars, and we've uh, only been able, we've, we've, we've rebuilt ten homes. And she was on this guy's show up here, um, Carell, you know, and I don't even want to discuss Carell, but you can go and see him at Carell dot 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 uh, uh, dot com. And uh, she was like, "Oh, and things are getting better. It's not the sorry picture. It's not the dread picture everybody was talking about." I'm like, "What are you looking at?" Because when I came down there, I saw the destruction, as as Kenneth said, with the overgrown lots right in my neighborhood. Every other house torn down. You know. Then I ride up to the Garden District and up around Carrollton and all of that, where the wealthy white people live, and I saw brand new paint and everything else. And I'm sitting there, I was starting to point them out. There's a road home house. There's a, how did they get the money? Yeah, you so can spot I'm them out saying, pretty easily. Huh? I said, yeah, you can spot them out pretty easily, like I said. Isn't that true? Did you go oh, across you the canal when you came back? Did I go where? Did you go across the canal, you know, into the Ninth World, the Lower Ninth World, when you came back? You know, I didn't. I didn't. I don't, and maybe I'm wrong in my assessment of what this woman was saying, but no, you're right. Can't you would be, be shocked. It can't be as jolly alley as she was making it. We need to find oh, out no. where that money came from that she got and who she is, because it sounds like to me, and I hate to use this old parlance, but she sounds like a carpetbagger. Okay, and she was making it sound like all oh, is not bleak as people say things are coming back. Da 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 da. I'm like, well, what what new all is she looking at? I just was I'm down there. I didn't... Uh, yeah, Kenneth, huh? uh, Kenneth, tell us about the Lord Knight. Um, yeah, please. For, for our audience. Okay. Right there by the breach, you know, there's a lot. There's some houses, you know, they have the Brad Pitt and making right houses, and they do have some rebuilding. But if you go a couple of blocks down, you would think it was like the movie Children of the Corn, how they just have the weeds are so high. Some of them are like as high as houses. It's like really bad. Some of the streets still have massive craters in them. If you're driving, we probably would never ever drive down that night, but just during the day, if you're driving and you're not paying attention, you really going to mess your car up. And, you know, down there, they still don't have a high school. I think at a recent meeting, they're supposed to um, rebuild. I don't know if it was Lawless or Carver, but that's not going to be done for another 15 months. Yeah, it's going to be like Mm -hmm. another year before it's done. There's still no major grocery store in that area. So, yeah, I think she was kind of over-exaggerating if she was saying it's not as bad in that area. Definitely, I was, it was bad. What I heard her say, well, we came down here. So when she said that, that let me know you're not from New Orleans. And I don't have a problem with people coming down and helping. Come on, everybody, one and all, because it's still we still need help. But when she started painting this beautiful picture, I'm like, oh, no, that's not the thing I saw when I came. And the only reason I couldn't get over the bridge was because I was at City Hall dealing with this tax issue. I live in the 8th Ward. My house had 16 feet of water in it. My husband's been repairing it since then. Road Home gave us a pittance of what we should have gotten. You know, so we're appealing now if they haven't run out of all the money. I'm just saying. You know, this is this is a land grab that I couldn't even dream could happen the way it's happening now. Yeah, the organization Nora is through Road Home 
um, buying up a lot of property and auctioning it off. I think they have an auction either tomorrow or Wednesday. You know, it's part of that land grab you're talking about. Well, the blessed thing is, is that you have three years to um, redeem your property if you pay whatever taxes were owed and whatever amount it was sold for. But I'm, I'm really, really, really concerned now because, like I said, we didn't get the one notice the city sent. And the city people can find you, as they say, when 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 they want when they want to find you, and you got a bill to pay, they can find you then. You know, uh-huh. so that's my point. My point is, you know, why didn't you go to FEMA? You know, FEMA kept list of everywhere they ship people. You know, now how many homeowners are in my situation? I really, I was talking to a young woman at at the road home, and I was telling her because at that very moment the, the tax thing was going on, and I was telling her she's my case advisor, and I was telling her, you know, I said this is that doesn't so happen at City Hall. She said, well, child, she said I better go check because I didn't go down there, and and she is in New Orleans working on the road home program. By the way, she's getting laid off Wednesday, but anyway. A, a young sister. So anyway, she said, "Well, I better go down there and see if I still have a house if they sold it." I said, "Yeah, you better." So Parnell and Kenneth, y'all need to put the word out. I don't know if y'all know yeah. City Hall, but guess what? This crap about paying all your taxes at one time—that's the secret weapon, and that is so not cool. Because you know, after we we who are not wealthy went through all we went through and lost everything we lost. And half of us down there, I know, don't have jobs. We just want we just want to be home. We're getting creative. We're getting businesses. But how many? There's seventy five thousand people still left out here. How, how many homeowners have been? You know, this have gone through this. Who want to come home? Who want their property? Yeah, yeah. there's a lot of work that needs to be done. Uh, and and I, I see exactly what you're talking about. I see it. Every well, you day. know what I'm doing for now? I'm doing something okay. about it. Uh, in a little while, I'm getting up and I'm going to the fax machine, and I, I have put together a list of complaints about this very subject that I'm sending to the Department of Justice. Uh, the top three people, Eric Holder, and, and I forget the one in the middle, and then I know this guy, Thomas Perez, is over the Civil Rights Division. So I'm about to, yeah, I'm sending it to them, and I'm sending it to the president. Now, the president won't get it today because, you know, I want to write him. I don't want to email him. You know, I, and I'm going to write these other ones too, but I'm sending it by facts today, because this has got, you know, this has gone way too far. Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, well, in our closing minutes, I wanted to ask you all, um, I don't know if any of you all could respond to my question, um, to um, uh, to Tracy about the, um, you know, that, that big tribunal where people were giving their, their testimony. I don't know, that's, that was really powerful, and people had some really unbelievable and really um, heart-wrenching stories about what happened to them, you know, during the flood and after the flood. Um, and it's really unfortunate when people, I guess, share that much of themselves that nothing happens with it, you know, that information. Um, but I was wondering, um, this today, the 29th, is the day after the historic um, uh March on Washington speech, you know, the I Have a Dream speech. And on Saturday here in the San Francisco Bay Area, uh, one of our, our comrades, Jahara, um, put on an event called Cash the Check. You know how King talks about in his speech about that check that 
It's been reading insufficient funds. funds. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Sounds like the check, uh, you know, that's floating in New Orleans and Louisiana and Mississippi and Alabama and Florida um, uh, and Georgia presently because of, you know, Katrina and in and, and New Orleans' case, you know, the levees breaking. So I was wondering um, if you wanted to sort of tie things up uh, around that, as well as no one mentioned Hurricane Irene, and I think I put that out to you, uh, Parnell, uh, about Angola and the parish prisons in New Orleans and the flood that people knew was coming and people were told to evacuate, and yet prisoners and people in hospitals were left to die and did in some instances if they couldn't get out. And then, and then the way they were rounding people up, putting everybody in Angola, just like women, women and men, just like, oh, you know, it's like such, you know, so so much danger. Uh, so we got to round these folks up. I mean, they were rescuing people that were incarcerated before they would help people that were not incarcerated, trying to get them back inside somewhere. Yeah, well, that, that's a, again, that, that's one of the horror stories, one of the many horror stories that come out of this. Um, I. Uh, yeah, well, let's deal with the prison issue first. Yeah, there were people removed from local prisons, uh, local jails, and placed in Angola, the Louisiana State Penitentiary, which was one of the, at one point, was one of the most notorious and brutal penitentiaries in the nation. Um, and, and some people I actually interviewed said that it was terrifying simply because they were put in population and there were murderers, uh, convicted murderers, rapists, and, and they were there for traffic violations, for child support, you know, and, and I mean, they were just terrified. That's all they knew was they were in Angola. So, so that all oh, that's true. And it's been about six years now. It's been, that's been sorted out. Most people have been released. But while I was in Houston, maybe uh, as far as three years ago, I was told that there were still people in jail in Houston from New Orleans, and they wouldn't release them because they didn't have a place to release them to. So they were still being held in jail in Houston. And we, you know, I turned it over to people who I thought could do something about it, and I never followed up. I don't know what happened with that. But, uh, yeah, at that Rikers, and I'm pretty sure that the people turned out well because it wasn't as bad as they thought it might have been. But, uh, the people I interviewed from parish prison were telling me how they had to break out because the, the cell doors were locked, but because free man knew that when electricity went out, the lock would release. And so they handcuffed the, the cell doors closed and, you know, put several pair of handcuffs on there to make sure the doors didn't open. And the free man left. And, that the guards left, and they basically left the inmates to fend for themselves inside these locked cells. So I say when the water started coming in, they naturally they panicked, man, we're about to drown in here, and they found ways uh, of breaking the yeah, right. cell door. They got out of there. Right. They, I'm sorry. Okay, they were they were coming out. Uh, you know, they were going out the windows, and uh, while they were dropping out of the windows, the free men were were down there shooting at them. And uh, well, brother, they later on they found that they were 
non-lethal weapons they were shooting them with, like rubber bullets and bean bags and stuff. But they put them all on the bridge and held them on the bridge until they transported the Paris prison. So that you know that's one of the things that went on. Uh, one of the years, several questions that I'm talking so much I'm forgetting what I'm talking about. Now. <laughs> well, can I can I can I can I just briefly jump in and talk about the the, the tribunal and the legislation and a few little things around that, and I'll be brief. Well, yeah. there was a tribunal. Think, uh, wait, wait a second, Cece. Um, just let me check. Um, I think. Um, uh, are you back with us, uh, Tracy? No. Okay. All right. Um, I thought she was back. Okay. Go ahead, Cece. <laughs> well, we'll try to call her while I'm talking. <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. Well, we, we're out of time, so we're like wrapping it up right now because I've got my other folks in the studio. But they'll okay. they're they're they'll they'll hold on. Go ahead. Well, at any rate, you know, initially there was the Stafford Act, which was uh, interestingly changed right after Katrina. They they struck out certain passages, one being that they would put a person's house totally back together. They would pay mortgages on and on and on. All right. So then initially the federal, the female initially said, well, we're going to house you guys for two years. But I think because of those tribunals, this has it went to uh, five years, and now they have rolled most people who are still um, uh, disenfranchised away from home onto the Section 8 rolls. So that, and then, but there's Scott Myers Lipton, uh, a sociology professor at San Jose, who has been pushing for the last five years this legislation, uh, which we he, he and I talked about it, and he went on and he started pulling that together. I think it's Senate Bill 4141. But what it does is it creates a WPA-type program that would provide 100,000 jobs for 100,000 residents who want to return home. So those are the legislative moves that I know that have been made. But we need to look at that Stafford Act because that is nothing nice. That, you know, we were we were totally disenfranchised right then and there. They struck through important pieces that they had given other people previously because it was mostly us. And that's you know that that's my that's my take on what was happening. But we need to support uh, Scott Myers Lipton's bill. And ironically, he hasn't been able to get the support of any uh, very few of the Congressional Black Caucus around that bill. Mhm. Right. Yeah. Um, let me see if this is Tracy. Tracy, is that is that you? Hello. Hello. Um. Hello. Yes. 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 I was listening to your show, and I'd like to make a comment on the uh, Katrina issue, if possible. Oh, yeah, yeah. Tell us who you are. Uh, my name is Collins. I'm a resident of New Orleans. Okay. Uh, I was here for Katrina, but I did evacuate and didn't stay. Mm-hmm. And uh, my concern is with uh, the children. I'm raising six grandchildren, and even today I'm still not sure uh, where their mind is. You know, they've had three different school systems in three years, and the traditional life of a child is is changed uh, because as a child I had friends around the corner. I could play outside. I could ride my bike, and, and they don't have that anymore. And the school systems that they have here is uh, is really atrocious. Uh, the way they uh, uh, handle things and all schools doing things on their own. I heard the word that New Orleans is a big experiment and the world is watching this experiment. I do believe that. 
but at the expense of our children, what, what, what is going to happen to them? That's my biggest concern. Uh, it, it concerns me a lot. I don't know if I'm just jumping in and changing the subject, but no, uh, I just had to call in when I heard that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, certainly, certainly. Um, no, that's uh, a great subject to wrap up on because, you know, the mm-hmm. schools are pretty horrible. There's no um, cohesive, like, school board, as he says. All, most of the schools are being charterized, and they're all sort of doing their own thing. And then as far as the kids, once they do get out of school, you know, there's no jobs really. There's, you know, no real major industries, you know, down here like recently where, you know, to draw to draw people in to work, which is probably why crime is so bad down here. Right, yeah. right. Yeah, because you mentioned, um, Kenneth, that your kids are in private school, right? Yeah, yeah. education is good if you can pay for it, but if you're depending on the public school system, then... <laughs> You're really going to get shortchanged as far as education for your child. But it's always been like that. It's just magnified now that they had an opportunity to fix it. And, you know, it really hasn't been fixed at all. Mm-hmm. Well, I hate to say it if I'm still on, but I think it's a concerted effort to do that. Uh, I really do believe that behind the firing of teachers and not hiring of teachers that were teaching here and hiring the, the uh, Teach for America kids, and, and I, I, I like to say, most teachers now are kids, and they don't know how to handle our children. They right. don't know. They they really don't know. I have I have one. I'm raising six grandchildren. I have one who's an exceptional child, and uh, I just put him in a school that I thought was a better school, and now I'm finding out that that school has problems. I'll be over there in in about an hour to to investigate what's going on. But it's a job. It's difficult. It's very difficult. And in my mind, when I look at my children, I, I am so sorry I came back to a city that I love because it, it's very, very hard living here day to day, very hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, you well, can my... be commended for taking care of six grandchildren. That's, that's exactly. a big job. It's a big job. Exactly. And, and it's great that you are visiting the schools so that, that the administration know that that they can't just do whatever they want to do because you are there and you're going to hold them you know, accountable. Well, may yeah. I just step? Okay, go ahead. I'm sorry. Let me uh, go ahead. Oh, no, no, go ahead. What I was going to say is, because, you know, when we were down there, my husband and I, we did Parents for Educational Justice, and we found out then what people, are, some of the teachers, not even in New Orleans, are coming to the point of knowing is that one test does not fit all. I want to tell you that that No Child Left Behind and that LEAP test, took our system down, and it was designed to do exactly that. Now, my son was brilliant. When I came up here and put him in school up here, they put him in special ed because he, he was so far behind what they were doing up here. So, yeah, I sympathize with you and your grandkids, and I would say, you know, stay on top of those schools. But if you need to, some of these private schools have hardship vouchers, but if you need to, you may have to think about homeschooling your your grandbabies. That is definite thought. Well, in in uh, in, in my wife's head and mine, that is a definite thought. And, I mean, because uh, they can socialize with each other. They got enough grand. You got enough grandkids. <laughs> 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 but yeah, that's yeah. it's bad. And they took our system down. And those 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 uh what, Benedict Arnolds in the form of Karen Carter, whatever her new last name is, and. And, yeah. and that's yeah, St. Yeah. Julian that set up there and, and, and nullified our school board, our elected officials. I haven't forgot that. And Luella Givens up there at the Betsy board. 
You know, yeah. I hear her talking strong now, but yeah, because Gerard Stevens is getting on her. But you know, I ran against her, and you know, Leslie Jacobs put her, the money on her, right? So I don't know if you guys know that or not, but it was Leslie and Paul Pasterak and all of those architects of education. Yeah, and that's what they wanted. Because Paul Pasterak had the nerve to say at one Betsy board meeting, I would like my children to go to public school also. Mm. So, you know, he got his wish. But I hear these charter schools, if you want to compare statistics and and, and, and the, the test scores, they'd know better than than uh, some of the public schools. Yeah, I told Wanda that recently. Like, overall, maybe some of them are great now better, but overall, they're really no better than what the um, Arlene Farris School Board was putting out. But what I don't understand, and maybe Kenneth or, or, or Parnell or this this grandparent can answer to me, what I don't understand is how they could take the reins off of these charter schools and give them free range with our children and, and, and not have them under this governmental oppression with our dollars. And they couldn't do it with the public school system. That tells well, you right there what the plan, board was. I huh? I think it's a concerted plan. I really believe You know it. It, it was. It is. Yeah. And, and no you doubt. know, this is the first time in in the history of the United States that a, a public school system in a, in, a, in a city has had all of the money it needs to do anything it wants to do. This is the first time this has happened. And they still and, and people are looking. Okay, you have all of the resources you need to come up with an A number one public school system. Now let's see where it goes. And it's not happening. It well they tore down my they tore down my elementary school, Phyllis Wheatley, around you know, across from the Lafitte projects and there was nothing wrong with that school. They could have rebuilt the administrative office because that school, that school set up on pillars that were at least twenty uh, 25 feet high. Yeah, they so told what down the project, you? and nothing was really wrong with the Lafitte project either. Right. And yeah, they told down quite a few schools nothing was wrong with. This is why I'm saying this is a concerted effort. But I thank my brothers and sisters in, in, in New Orleans. We're so quiet and so complacent. You know, you can do what you want. The squeaky wheel gets the oil. Right. And the wheels in New Orleans are rolling very, very smooth. Yeah. Wow. This has been, you know, really an enlightening conversation. And uh, on the sixth anniversary of Hurricane Katrina and the levees breaking, um, some people say they were blown up. Um, I was wondering, uh, in conclusion, do any of you all want to give any, like, websites? Um, Herb, do you want to re um, reiterate um the, the one for uh, Louisiana Justice Institute um, and any other websites where people can get plugged in and get organized um, to be able to address some of these issues that we're raising right now. Yeah, well, Wanda, uh, thank you. Uh, yeah, LGI website is LouisianaJusticeInstitute.org. Uh, there's a lot of work to be done, and there's a lot of work that's going on. Mm-hmm. Uh, we do have some complacent people, but we've got a lot of warriors in the city also. And then also the Louisiana Justice Institute, one of their areas of of work is education. So right there, um, uh, is it Colin, Ms. Collins? Yes. Yeah, you can um, definitely, you need to get in touch with those folks um, that are on the air with us today and see how, you know, they can help you leverage your your rights as a parent, 
you know, as a, as a citizen of, you know, New Orleans, and you know, who your children have a right to a decent and proper education, and if, right. yeah, so I'm sure they can help you leverage that. Um, CC. Um, oh, I will call and uh, I will call and talk to them. But you know, one of the things when you do when you do things like this. It's uh, it's not just uh, uh, something that you have to do. It turns into a job, and yes. the people who the parents they they actually don't have time. That's the problem. You no, know, I'm talking you don't about have time to go and to me, go Ms. and Ms. fight Tyler, the way. I'm, t- I'm talking about right now. You know, on the air with you uh, is uh-huh. Louisiana Justice Institute, and what I'm saying is that we just gave you the the website. Uh, Herb, give give uh, give out the uh, the phone number too. Yes, ma'am. And, and I don't have the number to the office, but what I will give oh. is my personal cell number, and I'm just wide open twenty four seven. That number is area code eight three two four nine four four zero two seven. Anyone who wants to is welcome to call me, and if I can't do anything to help you, I can probably direct you to someone who can. And what was the name again? Find out, Well, Louisiana Justice Institute is the name of the uh, okay. organization. Okay. Yeah, Louisiana okay. Justice Institute. I think that would be a really good um, connection for you, Mr. Collins. And thank you so much for calling in today. Thank you. Have a good, right. uh, have a good day. You too. Peace and blessings. Um, and uh, Cece. Yeah, babe. Um, organizations um, here in the San Francisco Bay Area, as well as. Um, in New Orleans, if you know of any that people might be able to use for resource as resources, I think the Louisiana Justice too. That's a really good one. But others, because there are others. <laughs> that well, I don't know if there are others. Oh, I think oh really? Could probably, <laughs> I could probably tell you that. Now, as far as out here, really and truly, and I want to thank you so much for the event that you guys put on. But as far as I'm concerned, there's you guys, and there's another group. You know that. Uh, the one that has been studying the Katrina effects and trying to do some legal, at least legislation, and write that, you know. Uh, out of San Jose State, that that that. Uh, no, not not Scott. It's, oh. it's, 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 they're out of Oakland. I just have to find the oh. information. Every now and then, I'll get their emails. They're still organizing oh. and doing things, but I don't, you know, mm-hmm. they're trying. But okay. your organization, that beautiful, beautiful ceremony. I want everybody to know that one is organization has been doing that for the last six years you guys have that book called words as the poets read it was absolutely beautiful and you guys raised money for the organizations you know one in new orleans and one down in in mississippi but i you know i know that you guys are the next best thing to what's going on i haven't had time to do activism because of course i'm raising my kids now you know and i did initially for two or three or four years but then i had to come back down and start dealing with them Right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Well, that the the book is Words Upon the Waters. Um, Bay Area writers respond to Hurricane Katrina, and uh, all of the f- proceeds from the book go to um, Common Ground Health Clinic and Life of Mississippi, the Biloxi office. And the books books sell for fifteen dollars. And if you're interested, you can um, you can email me. Um, Let's see. What's my email address? I want to give you. Um, <laughs> oh, uh, uh. <laughs> uh, email address. You can email us um, uh, at wandasabir at gmail dot com, and uh, let us know if you want a book, and we can send you one, and we send the money to the organizations. Um, and uh, Kenneth, organizations. 
um, that people can get plugged into for resources? Um, besides the Louisiana Justice Institute, I think there's another organization, Silence is Violence. they real heavy oh, as far yeah. as okay. crime in the community. Um, and just, you know, you can follow some of the local black newspapers like the Louisiana Weekly or the New Orleans Tribune. There's always a lot, you know, to find out as far as what they're reporting. And, you know, and they're always commenting on other activist groups also. Mm-hmm. Right, well, right. I think... And I then also, just, and also, um, Kenneth, you know your paper, right? That you write for you, you're really yeah. Good. You can follow me, Kenneth Cooper, at NewOrleansExaminer.com. dot com. Mm-hmm. So we, I'm always plugging in something, also. Right. Yeah. Okay. And Cece, uh, closing thoughts. Yeah, I just wanted to thank everyone. It's so good that uh, some people understand that this struggle is far from over. I commend Kenneth for Kenneth. Did he have a website? Yes, New Orleans Examiner, and, you you know, Kenneth Cooper at the New Orleans Examiner, and, you know, don't you you Google that, all my articles will come up. Mm -hmm. It's pretty easy to find. Great, great. Well, I'm glad to hear that, and Herb, I'm glad, well, I know you're a soldier, I've seen you in action, but um, I think one resource to to wrap my my statement up, I, I found, which I thought was very, very Great, and that was Gerard Stevens on WBOK, the new, you know, Danny Bakewell station now, because you could, if you can call in and get on, you can express it, and he will investigate, you know, and he will talk about that, and you know, that education program there is too, but anyway, yeah, I think that's a great resource that's been added to our community, Black Talk Radio. Mm-hmm. And you can also find him on the internet on Ustream, so oh, you can yeah. okay. listen to him. It's called Black Talk Radio? Well, no, it's called WBOK, but that's the first radio station, correct me if I'm wrong, fellas, that we've ever had consistent black, uh, a forum, a radio forum for blacks to express their views Hmm. and investigative. He is a great investigative journalist. Oh, that's good. That's uh-huh. another another venue for um for parents like Mr. Collins absolutely to, uh, to be on to talk about what's going on in the public school system because I'm sure you know his voice is representative of many many parents that maybe don't have are not as savvy as he is in with regards to you know calling into an internet radio show i mean it's pretty savvy right uh yeah. and mm-hmm. and also yeah so so he can represent you know all these voices that are not being heard because if if the money is there then there's no reason why the the New Orleans school system shouldn't be a model for public schools for the nation there's no reason for that. I just want to thank you also, Wanda, for 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 this radio show. So you, you're a soldier as well. Okay, thank you. Well, you all, I want to let you go. Get on out there and uh, go cover, you know, these various events commemorating this this horrific tragedy uh, in in our nation and in uh, and in our. Uh, and then the world, because it was just what happened is just so horrific, and it didn't have to be as bad as it was, particularly in New Orleans, because that was completely avoidable, because um, that was a man-made disaster, and uh, and the recovery is 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 just another man-made disaster. Yeah, yep. yeah, certainly, certainly. Exactly. You know, we we call it you know a maafa, you know, it's a black holocaust, but you right. know, we're you know we're gonna, we're not going to lay down and just take it, and and you all are soldiers and really doing some wonderful work, and we're so happy to be able to support you in that work. And I'm looking forward to reading 
uh, about what happens today, Kenneth, um, you know, after it's over. <laughs> oh, yeah, I should definitely have something out tomorrow. All right, cool, super. All right, you all take good care and, and think about, you know, I guess those folks that are having the uh, the tornado, Irene is, not tornado, Hurricane Irene is, you know, Katrina's sister is, you know, you know, sort of slinging her hair around um, on the East Coast and, and uh, lessons learned from uh, New Orleans in the Gulf uh, have not translated into a better situation for folks there, unfortunately, particularly those that are um, incarcerated and those that are disenfranchised and those that are supposedly disposable. Exactly. I just want to thank you again for having us on here. We appreciate you and all the work and support that you're giving us out here. Thank you. All right. <laughs> okay. Well, you're welcome. You all take good care and look forward to talking to you uh, in the future. All right. Thank okay. you, Melinda. Okay. Sure. All right. Peace later. <laughs> so we're going to change it up a little bit and uh, have a little poetry. Uh, <laughs> uh, good morning, Faraha. How are you? I'm good. How are you? Oh, I'm fine. Thanks for hanging in there. Um, uh, Faraha is um, young blood. Was one of the poets that uh, shared her work yesterday at the uh, Hurricane Katrina uh, report back and fundraiser that uh, Cece Campbell Rock was was speaking of, and she has a new book out, "Cat Eyed Woman from Louisiana." Really wonderful collection of of work that she's going to share with us on the air, uh, and we're going to go out with her. So it's going to be nice to sort of wrap up this discussion um, about uh, the golf six years after Katrina with some poetry. So how are you this morning? Thanks for hanging in there. I'm good, Wanda. What I'd like to do, though, before I start reading from my book is to just make a couple of comments because oh, yes. I am a teacher, mm-hmm. and um and I was overseas. I, I usually teach on the international circuit, so I was in Tunisia at the time that Katrina hit. And so I, and what I'm, what I've listened to this morning, oh man, I, it's just so, it's, it's just so, I don't, I, I'm just almost speechless because what I see, if you can recall that. What happened with the prison system in the United States when it was turned over into private? business interests is the same thing that is happening to the public school system here in the United States. People have got to wake up and understand what is going on. They really have to see the connection between how the the prisons were turned over to business interests, traded on the stock market to make a profit at the expense of the prisoners, and the same thing is happening to the public school systems throughout the United States. I currently live in Panama, but I also uh, come from time to time for a period of time, and I live in Durham, North Carolina, and I'm sure that people probably know are aware of what's happening in Wake County with the attempt to resegregate the schools there because what's happening is that the, what I call the rapid Republicans and the teabaggers, their money is going into buying school boards and putting in place these right-wing ideologues who are reconver- are converting these school systems 
back into the segregation that was happening before. And it is really something people need to be aware of. And all I can say is that we're going to have to take to the streets again. That is the only thing that's going to be able to to change things because this money that's flooding in with the decision by the Supreme Court to treat corporations as private individuals, you've got money that's unaccounted for going into the campaigns of people who are determined to, in their words, take back their country. And it is frightening. And unless we wake up and do something about it, I'm afraid that our public school system is going to go the same way as the prison system in this country. So that's what I wanted to just make a comment about that before I read anything from my book. Oh, yeah, certainly, certainly. Um, thank you for the comments. And I was looking, trying to find a bio somewhere, and I was just like just sort of yesterday um, just sort of listening on the periphery because uh, you have a lot of big, big community here in the San Francisco Bay Area, even though this particular area is not home per se anymore for you. Uh, you know, um, you know, you, you used to live here. And, uh, yeah. yeah, and, and you were mentioning that you were, uh, you were a host on uh, KDIA radio station, I believe. Oh yeah, back in the day, I yeah. started KDIA as a um, news reporter, and eventually I became news director at KDIA. And I was I used my name then as Furaha Hayati, and Youngblood is my maiden name. So, um, so I, I that is the name now. But Furaha is the name that I am. Furaha Hayati at KDIA. And then also at KPFA, I work there as a producer in the public affairs department. And at KDIA, I got to meet some absolutely wonderful people. I produced a program on Sundays called The Black Woman's World. And then, of course, being news director there. We had some absolutely heady times. Those were days that there was so much hope. There was so much enthusiasm. There was so much dedication, there was so much determination and there was so much unity in the community to make changes that benefited the community and this was what I was about and that's what I'm still about and I've just taken a different direction because I, as I mentioned, I've been living overseas now since, well, I lived in Africa from 87 to 97 and then I lived in, worked in Tunisia from 2004 to 2007, and from there I went to Panama, where I still am. So that's kind of like, you know, a little bit of my background. But I was born in Louisiana, not in New Orleans. I was born in Shreveport, and my parents moved to Los Angeles when I was three years old. So I didn't really know Louisiana except through the rituals, the traditions, the beliefs, the practices that my parents brought with them that, of course, we had at our family growing up. And it was it was just uh we just had a way of looking at life that was kinda different from other things, but our our cohesiveness as a family was created and was reflected throughout the community that we lived in. I lived in Watts. I grew up in Watts. I went to Jordan High School and so it was all about community. That is what we that is what we grew up as as a community. And so when I moved to Oakland when I grew up as an adult it was a natural thing for me to seek out the black community and to be a part of that. And when I was lucky enough to be hired by Lewis Friedman, it was a, it was just it was a natural thing for me to do was to continue with that 
opening of a place where people could come and express themselves and have access to the airwaves so that they could get out the message that was going to be beneficial to all of us as as part of that community that I was a part of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So um, Louis Freeman, um, who is he? Yes, he was the news director at KDIA. Okay, okay. So um, what brought you to Northern California and uh you know you've been a teacher uh since yes. most of your most of your uh, adult working life um yes. and and particularly a teacher uh in you know in in the diaspora and yes. i was wondering um sort of academically what your preparation was that and that is that what you when you were a child it's like okay when i grow up i want to you know i want to be a news i want to work for a news news uh i want to work for a radio station or do i want to be a writer or do i want to travel and teach so what were you know, what were some of these these uh, career possibilities floating around when you were a youth deciding what you wanted to do with your life? As I said before, I'm kind of old school. My parents, their firm belief that they passed on to us is that they wanted a better life for us, and they understood that the only way that that could happen was to be educated. And so schooling, education was always, 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 pressed and pushed and and kept in front of us as gold. And I knew that I loved to read. From the time that I learned to read, I absolutely loved reading. And so what I wanted to do when I grew up was I thought about being a truck driver at one point. I loved those big tractor-trailer trucks that would go by, and I wanted to think about that. And then I was thinking about becoming a nurse, but I eventually settled on becoming. I wanted to become a teacher, and I wanted to become a teacher of African-American literature when I grew up. And there were, you know, you have these little diversions along your path, but I I, I married at a very early age. So my education was kind of like bits and pieces where I could get a few classes here, get a few classes there, because my main goal then was, of course, to bring up my children to be a part of a family. And I was at one point a single mother, and that's when I went to KDIA. I was, you know, but I did finish my education. I did get my my undergraduate degree in English at uh, San Jose State University, and then I got my graduate degree at Central Michigan University in broadcast film administration. Uh-huh. And so that's kind of like what was my background. And so I did. I got into radio. I got into radio broadcasting. Kind of by chance, but anyway, I did do that. But the most satisfying career I've ever had, because I worked also as a public, uh, I also worked as a civil servant for the state of California in their public affairs department at the Public Utilities Commission. And then I also worked, of course, for KDIA, and then I worked at KPFA. But the most satisfying career I have ever had was a teacher. I absolutely love being in a classroom with young people because it is, such it is I, I don't it, it's such a blessing to me to have worked with young people because they keep you honest. They know when you know what you're talking about. They also know when you care about what you're doing. And I went to a conference once and I've never forgotten what this man said. He said that young he said that students, young people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. And I absolutely loved being in the classroom with my students. And I, I, taught, I taught high school. I taught here in the United States. I taught the AP program, which is the advanced 
placement program that prepares these young people to go into university or college. And sometimes if they're successful enough to pass the exam, they don't have to do that first year of what they call bonehead English. And then when I worked and lived overseas, I taught IB English, which is the International Baccalaureate. And I taught in uh, West Africa, in the Ivory Coast, and then I taught in Tunisia, in North Africa. And I can honestly say that it was an experience that will I will keep with me to my dying day because I absolutely believe that the learning experience, it is a two-way street. And I always try to, to get across to my students that they were not empty vessels waiting to be filled up they came into the classroom, and everything that they brought with them was as valid as anything we would study. And I wanted them to understand that, and they 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 really did. I I can remember God, it was such a when we did, when I was doing AP English in in um, San Francisco, we had to study, of course, all the so-called classics. But I made sure that we had black writers, we had writers of color, we had all of that. We had Toni Morrison's Beloved. We had, we just had everything that I tried to in, in, include in the classes. But I'll remember that we had Dante's The Inferno, which was part of the AP program. You had to introduce your kids to the so-called classics and Dante's The Inferno. And I had two young students, two of my students, Sean and Randy, who did a rap version of Dante's Inferno did not miss a meaning in it. And then I had another one of my students that was not in the AP class, he was in just one of my regular English classes, who created the music, the the original music that they rapped to in the background. I'm telling you, Wanda, these young people are absolutely amazing and we cannot lose them. We cannot allow what is going on to be successful in taking away control of the classrooms from the teachers who care and from the parents because I always made sure that my parents were a part of whatever we were doing in the classroom and I would tell them all the time, you must make the school board, the teachers, whoever it is, accountable. These are your children. And when they have a problem with whatever the teachers are, whatever it is, I always tell the kids, Try to sit down with the teacher first and resolve it. If you cannot, have your parents come in and do it. Because that is what has to happen. The parents have to be engaged. They cannot. And I know that it's sometimes difficult, but you can pick up a telephone and you can call if you're working and you can't come down in person. You can certainly pick up a telephone and make and make arrangements to meet with your, your the teachers after school or on weekends or how I don't care what you have to do because as one man said that I heard, it is the squeaky wheel that gets the oil and we must be alert. We must always be aware of what's going on with our kids in the classrooms where they're sitting because I, as I said, I taught high school, but I can understand that when a child first goes into school, if you'll notice, they are so bright-eyed, they are so alert, they are so enthusiastic, they are just looking forward to being in that environment to learn when they go in as kindergartners or as first graders. But if they run across a teacher who does not care about them, who's only in it because of the money they can make, by the time that child is in the third grade, they have absolutely lost faith and hope in what can happen to them, and they have been made to, to think and to believe that they are not worth working with or teaching. So that's, that's, that's the, the advice that I always give my, my, my parents. Hold on to your children, and when they're going through that teenage 
phase, which they always do, when they, like, get turned off and they go, no, 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 you hold on to them. I don't care how much they kick and bite and scratch and fight. You hold on to them because they will get through it and you will get through it with them. Don't give up on your kids. Don't give up on them. Don't let them go into the streets and, and go into a place where it's going to be a killer for them. You hold on to them. And when I was in overseas in both West Africa and in North Africa, again, the children were, the young people were absolutely amazing. And so what I did in the IB program, I'm just briefly, I always made sure that we had, again, writers like um, Wole Soyinka, because I was able then to put in the international component. So Wole Soyinka with his poetry, pairing him up with, um, excuse me, <clears throat> with Langston Hughes, pairing him up with Langston Hughes, getting into all of the things with the writers like Ngugi uh, Wathiango, the Kenyan writer, and with, uh, oh, man, it's just there was just so much. There was just such a rich feel that you could just get out there and cultivate with your students. And so as, I, as I'm, I'm hoping it comes across, we can do something about what's happening, but we have to be engaged and we have to connect ourselves. We have to reach out and, and join hands with everybody. We cannot be isolated because that's how it is always done. It is that whole thing about divide and rule. And it's not just here in the United States. It's everywhere. As I said, I live in Panama, and I live on the Caribbean Atlantic side of Atlanta, I'm sorry, of Panama, and the the government is absolutely neglecting that part of Panama because it's primarily Afro-Antiano. It's the the um, the, the um, descendants of the uh, Carib the ones that came in from the Caribbean to build the canal and to build the railroad, and they live in the worst part. They live in dilapidated housing. The schools are just horrible. And it's just, it's just, it really is another way that you can see how black people are neglected wherever they are in the diaspora. And you have to work together and you have to be sure that you don't allow yourself to be divided into those who are considered poor, those who are middle class, those who are up. You cannot, we cannot allow those divisions to take place. Mm -hmm. We have to see ourselves as one. Right. Yeah. Um, I just want to let you know, um, Faraha, that we've been joined by by Marta Sanchez, uh, a Panamanian yes, yes. <laughs> and American. And uh, thank you so much for joining us, Marta. Your baby's sleeping right at the moment. <laughs> <laughs> thank you, Wanda, for having me. And Faraha, yeah. it's been nice to join as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I, 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 I don't hear your child, so it's a good, good moment well, for you to be on. <laughs> yeah, he's he's sleeping on me right now. Oh, he's oh, in my lap. oh, oh, how sweet! <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm so happy to meet you yesterday. I'm so happy that Shakuru um, shared your book with me, Beauty Unbalanced. And I want to share your bio with uh, with our audience. And I just think it's um, really interesting that uh, you're a graduate of the University of Virginia School of Law and Spelman College because uh, we were speaking with an attorney earlier on the show um, who. Um, is director of the um, Louisiana Justice Institute, and they, uh, you know, they do litigation and um, and support for for the underrepresented in, in a lot of a lot of issues like housing and education and criminal justice and other kinds of areas that 
um, or so, you know, people that do not have resources often, um, you know, sort of get the short end of the stick, so to speak, um, when mm-hmm. they're, you know, going against, uh, you know, larger entities like city government or the school district or blah, 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 you know. So, uh, yeah, I thought it was really interesting um, and how, you know, you're an artist, and an activist, but you have done a lot of work, I believe, around women's issues, and and you also, uh, Faraha, um, have you know sort of have done a lot of work around around women, women's empowerment, uh, and and resources and development for women. Um, it says here that you are a self-taught artist. You're born in Panama in 1978. Uh, your paintings are autobiographical, capturing your journey from victim to survivor of sexual violence. And uh, your creativity has been key to your survival. And through your artwork and writing, you transform each experience into something useful and positive. Uh, Your work focuses on hope, the importance of self-love, and the way that we deal with or ignore sexual violence. And your work has previously been shown in Austria, Panama, Trinidad, Croatia, Honduras, and various cities in the United States, including New York and Atlanta. I was wondering, um, and your website is poetryandart.org. Uh, do you have an exhibit up currently that people could could see, or um, have they all closed uh, presently? Well, the the current update that I have is that I have a piece at um, it's in the U.S. Art and Embassy Program in oh, Kinshasa. Oh. So I'm really excited about that. Um, they have an exhibit that's supposed to be activist artwork um, on various different issues, and so they invited me to share one of my pieces. And the painting that is included in that exhibit is called The Survivor. And it is an image of a woman wrapped in um, the caution tape that you see at crime scenes. And um, in the background, if you look closely, you'll see um, the alleged survivor, and the word alleged is scratched out in the paint. Um, And I just wanted to highlight what it feels like to be a survivor of sexual violence and have the crime scene actually be your body. Um, So, you know, when I do presentations with students or with communities, often we look at an image and we explore what that image says. So what we explore usually with that image is what does it mean to be a crime scene and what do we think when we see crime scene tape and a crime scene and how do um, police officers normally explore those crime scenes and how that same exploration gets transferred to the body um, and how difficult it is when you cannot leave the scene of the crime. So how do we navigate that as survivors and how do we navigate that as a community to support those survivors to get through this? Because um, this is something that many, many people have to face, unfortunately, but the good news is it's something that they face courageously and they face with hope and they face with friends and with their spirituality or whatever things bring them strength. And they're able to get through it, and they're able to not only survive but thrive afterwards. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So tell us, tell us about your journey. Um, um, have you always uh, written, and have you always painted and drawn? Uh, because in your book, you've got um, sort of, um, you know, graphite drawings, and then you've got others that are, I don't know if they're pastels or or paintings. I can't tell because it's. How you know, like for instance, uh, Serenity, is that a painting or is that pastels or? 
Serenity is acrylic on canvas. Okay. It's, uh, four inches by four inches, so very tiny painting, that one. Um, and then I had a magnet that I um, I kind of included in that piece. The, the word serenity is one of those um, poetry magnets. So I did a very small series that included um, poetry magnets and, and just collaged um, different images. Most of the color images that are in that book you you see are um, acrylic on canvas or paper and then there's one that is just um, uh, I think it was just colored pencil on paper and often I just use whatever I have around me and I um, just bring it together however I'm feeling the ones that look like graphite yeah they're just pencil and paper and they're sketches that uh, precede the artwork so I usually sketch out an image or a vision of, of what I want, and then I add color or bring color to the, the creation. So various drafts um, before I get a final work. And what I love about painting is that you can't, and you, creativity in general, you just there's no wrong answer. You know, as long as you're expressing what you're feeling honestly and truthfully, then whatever comes out is is perfectly right and acceptable and and what you needed in that moment. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So your journey, um, tell us about, you know, you went to law school. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and, and you know, you're telling stories here, uh, illustrating your books, you know, your painting and your mm-hmm. drawing, uh, mm-hmm. and your speaking, and just wondering sort of how these these paths, you know, sort of intersect. And, oh, okay. you know, <laughs> yeah, one coming yeah. from another or... Or they're both being operative at the same time. Yeah, just tell us about a little bit about yourself and in, 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 in your in your work. Okay, I always drew from as early as I can remember being able to hold a pencil um, or a crayon. Um, I sketched straight through school and college, and then law school. If you if I look at um, the law school notes that survived, um, are all doodles in the margins of, of legal papers. I have um, notebooks filled with little drawings and sketches that became paintings later or will eventually become paintings. Um, no one ever taught me how to paint. I started that when I was at Sonnen College. Um, one day I realized that I was very feeling very badly, very down, and I uh, didn't know what to do with those feelings. I wasn't eating at the time. I was feeling very overwhelmed. And so I got, I went out and I bought some tempera and a big paper, and I painted this um, woman reaching for the sky. Um, she was um, a little, like she was a round woman. She was healthy, and um, that's how I got back to eating. I wanted to create an image for myself of what beauty looks like, and the images that surrounded me up until that point, and often in Panama, I don't um, Faraha was talking about this briefly yesterday with a group of our friends, um, how, how the images in Panama don't often reflect the diversity and the beauty. And um, you don't see a lot of women of color on billboards, and you also don't see um, women who are, are round and, and you know, curvy, um, you know, which is really, really beautiful. So um, I had just come back from home, and I was at Spelman, 
And I, I decided to paint this image, and that is how I started painting. I liked that, and I bought um, some oil paintings, and then I started buying canvases, and I started just painting through my feelings and really processing some of the things that had happened to me years before. Um, I was um, 16 when I was sexually assaulted in Panama um, by an acquaintance. And um, I had been actually um, molested by a family member um, and I had not spoken to anyone in my family about it. Um, I had maybe one close friend who knew what had happened to me when I was 16, and I don't even think I had mentioned to her about this family member who had um, been molesting me. Um, and... And my family, my parents knew that I had been sexually assaulted, but it wasn't something that I was comfortable talking to them about or that they were comfortable talking to me about. Um, they had attempted to get me into counseling, and I wasn't ready for it, and I really shut down. Um, and that's kind of like the extent of how they tried to help me process that um, but um, I, I just really, I think, did what I needed to do in that moment. I know that often people talk about how strong you have to be to speak out against violence. And what they don't talk about is how strong you have to be to be silent um, and to, to, to kind of process all of that fire stuff. Because I think that also takes a certain kind of strength and even more really strength than, than to speak out, to be silent. And, and to carry all of that weight by yourself takes a strength. Um, and so when I started painting, I started releasing everything that I had been through, and I started being able to talk to others about my experiences in a way that really, really, really allowed me to um, feel better and to, you know, um, get to a place where I was healing really, really, I think, quickly um, and eventually, after years of painting, I was in law school, and one day I received an email from a friend of mine saying that another Spelman graduate named Lori Robinson was looking for survivors to interview for her book, I Will Survive. Um, and I just responded to the email without really thinking twice about, you know, what consequences might come from that. And I said, you know, I was willing to be interviewed. And when we spoke, uh, Lori was really interested in my healing process, in the fact that I had really been, um, you know, doing a, a bit of self-healing work. Um, and she was also interested in this, you know, my diverse background, the fact that um, my mother is African-American, my father is Afro-Latino, of uh, Jamaican descent. And I had this um, really, I guess, different perspective and approach to, to healing from sexual violence. So she interviewed me from her, for her book, and when her book came out, she said, you know, Marta, would you like to come out and um, exhibit some of your artwork at this book signing that I'm having? And so I did that the first time, and then it became, hey, Marta, do you want to say a few words? And so I did that, and then it she said, hey, Marta, do you want to co-present with me? I'm presenting, I want to present at the CDC National Conference. And then we did that. And from there, people started inviting me to present on my own. And suddenly, I found myself just saying yes and showing up and doing whatever felt right in that moment. And that is how I discovered this other thing that really, really helps me um, heal and makes me feel very empowered, which is 
public speaking. Um, and I just have been saying yes and not thinking about the consequences of, of saying yes to really um, all of these opportunities that have stemmed from that. Um, and so that's how all these paths merged for me. Um, the law school piece, I, I went to law school thinking that I could address this issue and quickly found that, um, unfortunately, the law is something that's, as you said, really inaccessible to a lot of people due to, to resources. Um, and I think with this issue, it's particularly difficult because lawyers are at the long end of a long list <laughs> of people that um, a survivor would have to contact you know, after an incident. So first the survivor would have to pick up a phone and, I mean, often they're not even calling friends, but, um, you know, they're sometimes not calling support resources which are available and free and don't obligate you to necessarily call the police. Um, So the police would have to be like that third um, step and after the police and, say, the hospital, um, there would be maybe a lawyer. And so it's 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 a lot that has to happen before a survivor gets to the legal process, and I think the legal process is, is daunting for a lot of survivors. So um, I wanted to be closer. I wanted to be at the uh, prevention end of things rather than waiting to see if the survivors found me and called me. So I started using my art and my um, poetry and my personal story to reach out to survivors and to communities to say, you know, I'm here to support you. And so are so many wonderful community resources that don't judge you, that don't want, won't ask you what happened. They don't necessarily need to hear your story, but they will be there to answer whatever questions you have and to hear whatever you would like to share with them. And they won't judge you and they won't make fun of you and you don't have to do this alone. And so that's that's the work that I do now. Um, oh, wow. Ah, thank you so much for sharing that. <laughs> thank yeah. you. So, um, Faraha, do you have any comments you want to engage each other? And then I want to ask you, Faraha, to tell us about this cat-eyed woman. What is a cat-eyed woman? <laughs> and I want you to share some work. I actually jotted down some some. Uh, some pieces that I, I wanted you to read, like in part one, I wanted you to read one on the one on page one, and then in part two, I like home. There was quite a few in part two that I like, <laughs> and then um, Marta, I wasn't quite certain which ones I wanted you to read. I was thinking, okay, I wanted to read um, forgotten stories. I thought that was nice, and then I was looking at the one about somebody throwing a can out of a window. That looked interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Sure. And then I was like, I don't know, you know, do you have a favorite? So, um, so Farah, I'll give you the opportunity to um, respond to anything that, that Marta said and, and vice versa, Marta, um, anything that Faraha said that you might want to respond to. I think you already did, actually, because you missed everything that she said here, but you all had a talk. You had a conversation yesterday, I believe, over dinner even. <laughs> um, I met Marta uh, indirectly when I first moved to Panama in 2007, I had a very dear friend that I'd known for a very long time that I met when I was living in Ivory Coast, and she had moved to Panama, and she was just all excited, and, and so she took me to Casa Viejo, uh, which is the which is the old quarter in, in Panama, and Marta was part of this circle of people, and we went up there and joined in, and they were 
speaking in Spanish, and, you know, my Spanish, yo hablo un poquito. So anyway, I was there, and Marta was, and they were in a circle, and they were passing around something. I couldn't really see what it was, and each person that got it would speak about something, and then those that didn't want to, they would pass to the next person. So that was my first introduction to Marta, and I believe some of her artwork was up, and I was able to get a chance to see that. So that was how I sort of knew about her, and then I actually met her and got to know her at other events, and her mother is a teacher in Panama, and I got to meet her mother and um, who was working for... Uh, I think Balboa Academy, and I went to a meeting that was held at Balboa Academy with another one of my Panamanian colleagues at the school where I was working, and that's how I met her mother was at some event. I forget even what it was about. So, and her work was impressive. And then it's it's just we just we just got to know one another. And then when I found that she had moved to Oakland because of another one of her friends, Yabo, who came to Panama and had lost Marta's information and came and stayed with me, and then we got her over to Marta, got them hooked up. And so that it, it's, it's just part of a feeling of family. It, it's really what it is. I consider Marta like one of my own daughters. And when I saw her yesterday, it was just so wonderful to just get a big hug and see the baby because I knew she had the baby, but I hadn't had a chance to see the baby and to see him. It was just so wonderful. And so what I like to do is to just connect people. And so I knew that Monica was here in Oakland after yesterday's conversation with her virtually alone because her family is still in Panama. And I wanted to make sure that before I leave the Bay Area to go back to Panama that she is connected with everybody that I could connect her with. And so that's really, I'm so happy that that she got a chance to get connected with you, Wanda. And then she also got connected with Erica Huggins, who was at another event. She's going to be speaking for one of her classes. So that just makes my heart sing when I, when I can see all of this happening, where she's being supported and surrounded, and, and it just makes me feel just wonderful. <laughs> Thank you so much, Raha. Um, I mean, it's one of the things that I miss about Panama is the circle of just strong women that I had around me who were so supportive and encouraging. And Raha is one of those women. It's just so wonderful to have her um, here in Oakland and to be able to connect with you, Wanda, and, um, you know, just to hear her amazing stories um, and cat-eyed woman. Um, she was reading some of her poetry to us yesterday, and I just, I love it. It's just so good. So I'm looking forward to hearing more. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So go ahead, Faraha. Uh, can you can you stand a little bit longer? Um, where? Sure. Okay. Sure. sure. Just tell me which one you want me to read. Oh, I won't see. Um, well, first you need to tell us what a cat-eyed woman is. Oh. Uh, yeah, I, I never <laughs> okay, heard that expression before. Oh, okay, this, this <laughs> is, it's in the foreword, and, and so it's uh, it's an explanation of really how I came to, to do the, the book. Okay, I'll just read from it. It says, first an explanation of the origin of the title of my book. Years ago, I was accused of being one of them cat-eyed women from Louisiana who would cut you if you mess with them. I am not a violent person, and I would never cut anyone, but I like the imagery produced by cat eyes. 
and stored it in the recesses of my mind. And so that's how I came up with the title of it. And so, again, the first section of the book is called Cat-Eyed Woman. And most of these were poems written within the past two years, but there are a few that were written when I lived in West Africa many years ago. And during that time, from 1987 to 1997, I composed the poems in the second section, Dancing Lightly on the Edges of African Rhythms. And these poems are a mixture of politics, cultural practices, and social-slash-historical realities that I saw and experienced. And there is a sprinkling as well of poems that are intimate and personal. And actually, I I really took those poems from that section and put them in the section Cat-Eyed Woman. And then the third section, Panama Below Sea Level, is made up of poems written when I moved to Panama in 2007 to teach at an international school in Panama City. And the brevity of this section probably reflects the level of frustration and anxiety I felt in trying to take root in unfamiliar soil. And then much of my frustration was caused by the absence of the man my dreams. But since I'm not going to be reading from that section, I won't even go into why. I created that section, okay? Because I think you just want from the first section and the second section, right? No, no, no. I I, um, I didn't have a preference for the last section. Okay. So okay, you can because, read whatever you like. Okay, okay. because <laughs> from, the fourth from, section, from other, yeah. yes, fourth <laughs> section is really praise poems, 33 praise poems to welcome the man of my dreams. And there are some in there that I truly, truly love because they they are really love, they're love, things, you know, and I think that we need more and more and more of that. As just people, we need to be able to express the love that we have for one another. And and like two things that happened yesterday coming from two different women, one was at a service that I went to, and that everything that, that we need to do has to come from the inside. It has to come from the inside out. It cannot come from the outside for us to make changes. The changes have to become changes from the inside out. And so we have to hold on to loving one another. We must absolutely do that because that is where the strength that we need, it comes from that. It comes from being loved and from being able to love. And if we lose that, we have lost ourselves. And so this last section is about that. And it's it's it's, confi- it's not confined, but it, it, it focuses on the love between man and woman, and but it really is about the love that we have for every one of the people in our community. And so it says it, it, it that from my perspective, I wrote those poems because I just needed to express what I was feeling. And like Martha says in her art, to be able, there is no right or no wrong. It is simply expressing how we feel. And we must be able to do that despite all of the, all of the, the Stuff that tries to press us down, to keep us down from being able to love one another. Because once we get into that space where we cannot see one another, we're lost and we will never be able to dig ourselves out of wherever it is that they're attempting to bury us. We must, we must resist being loveless. We absolutely cannot afford that. We have to be able to love one another and ourselves. Mm-hmm. And so... I will read the first poem. Um, I think you told me you wanted me to read from part uh, from part one on yes. on page one. Yes, exactly. Did you did you want the cat-eyed woman or did you want sitting on the porch waiting for love? Which one? Um, cat-eyed woman from Louisiana. Yeah, uh, that's cat-eyed the- woman. The first uh-huh. one. Mm-hmm. Okay. 
cat-eyed woman. Watch out for them cat-eyed women from Louisiana. They've been known to cut a brazen rival or two-time and lover man. These women is famous for their loving and they cooking. Watch out, though. Many a man carries deep, lifelong scars because he got confused. Thought he could eat his field, then go on about his business. Didn't realize that a cat-eyed woman had put juju in that pot of peas, gree in them greens, hoodoo in the ham hocks. A cat-eyed woman sprinkles Florida water between her sheets and keeps a black cat bone under her pillow. She takes her bath in Nile water, just like Cleopatra did, tucked in her inner thighs and between her toes, are jewels that once belonged to Sheba. She can send her spirit to watch over her children on the other side of time. She can bind unruly thoughts and read the future in a casual glance. Watch out for a cat-eyed woman. But if you think you can stand being loved by a goddess and get a taste of paradise, pray that a cat-eyed woman puts her eye on you. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, that's great. Uh, and then also, could you read from part two, um, Home? Okay, I'll read the one that I I like to um, to talk about because this is what my, again, this one is called Unfinished Business, and it's kind of like, well, you'll hear it. It's well, what about, unfin- what, about, what about Home? Um, home? Yeah. Okay, wait, 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 which, okay, what page is that one on? Our uh, oh, here it is. On page 23, Uh, okay, home. I don't feel like a stranger here. Wearing a pina and sporting intricately braided hair, I confidently make my way to the market. Bonjour, Tanti, greets my arrival. J'ai le pina moins cher, Tanti. Somehow the warm greetings in Jula, Yoruba, Fante, Mandingo, and Bambara are familiar sounds as are the faces I see. That child sprawled in the dust could be Barbara's boy or that little girl whose pearl eyes calmly assess her world looks like my niece, Samantha. I don't feel like a stranger here. The burning sun unites us in sweat, and the police do not exclude me in extorting their pourboire. Sweet, fresh pineapple, delicious, voluptuous mango, and erotic banana welcome my tongue, too. If nightclubs that jump till dawn hold no allure for me, it's age, not foreignness, that keeps me out. I, too, exult in cool breezes sweeping in at dusk, and competing roosters at daybreak include me in their call to rise. No, I don't feel like a stranger here, until the neighbor across the street sends one of her children to direct a visitor to the house where the femme blanche lives. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, which one did you want to read? The one that I wanted to do is called uh, Rue de Serpent. There is a street in Abidjan. It's a Boulevard La Tri, and it leads to the most exclusive, most luxurious hotel there, the Hotel Ivoire. And of course, all of that has changed because there's been the civil unrest and everything in 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 Ivory Coast in Abidjan, where you have just what happens when there is civil unrest and uprising and disorder. But anyway, this one is called Rue de Serpent, 
and that means in French, uh, Snake Street. Hmm. A snake's hiss fills the night air, but it comes from a human throat. Girls of pleasure for sale troll the street leading to and from the Hotel Ivoire. Night after night they line Boulevard Latrie, hissing cooperatively at each passing car, laughing conspiratorially during the brief lull. Lured to Abidjan from impoverished villages as far away as Abinguru or as near as Kapanda, they come hoping to find work, if plain as housegirls, if beautiful as someone's toy. Perhaps no one told them before they left home that there are more willing hands than houses to clean or babies to tend. Perhaps they didn't get word that beautiful girls are common in cosmopolitan Abidjan and that wives can be dangerous obstacles to potential patrons. Faced with the probability of starvation or returning empty-handed to the village, beautiful girls turn to temporary work as bar hostesses whose bosses expect them to please the expatriates who frequent such places. In exchange for pleasing lonely grandfathers, they receive a meal and perhaps a soft bed in which to spend most of the night. For the plain girls, it is Rue de Serpent. There are no bosses there who can fire her, only customers who may carry the virus. But what choice has she? AIDS and starvation are opposite sides of the coin of slow death. As their hisses linger in the night air, their relatives lie sleeping in faraway villages, never dreaming that their daughters and sisters have become human snakes in the jungle of Abidjan. Yeah, wow. I was thinking about um, this particular poem. It reminded me of, uh, you know, the sexual exploitation of of, of girls and, and boys too, as well. Um, is is something that's uh, it's something that happens internationally. Uh, yes. and it's really interesting that I would live near a street called International yes. Boulevard, and that's yes. a stroll oh, yeah. for yes, it's fourteen. <laughs> Mm-hmm. East 14, yeah. yeah, they tried to change the imagery of it by changing the name, but it's East 14. Can I just yeah. really close with one that I, because I don't want to really leave that as the only impression. Yeah, well, before before you, before you go, um, you know, before you move on, yeah, this this whole image of the serpent, too. I was thinking about Dambala, you know, yes. the... Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yes. the, the deity. Yes. Uh huh. Okay. Yeah, and I wanted I wanted to ask you about that with regards to the name of the street and that image of the snake. Well, it, it, it's the name of the street is really Boulevard Latrie, mm-hmm. but my poem is called Rue des Serpents because of the noise that the women make to attract customers. They hiss. Ah. So that's why I call Literally it. Literally, they hiss. Okay. Yeah, they hiss at the customers, and and it's so it's kind of pathetic and kind of sad because at nighttime they can't really tell if it's a man or a woman driving the car and mm. so sometimes when I've been at the Hotel Ivoire meeting friends because of music there I knew the the, uh, the orchestra leader and the most beautiful music from Congo they used to have it in the lounge there at the Hotel Ivoire and I'd get together with friends and we'd go there and have a drink and we'd listen to the music so when I was driving coming back to go to my house I was in my car and of course it's, it's it's always hot and the windows are down, but they can't really tell. And so sometimes, even if you're a woman driving down the street, they still hiss at you to attract you to, you know, to become a client of theirs. So that hissing, it, it's all night as as they're out there really trolling the streets looking for customers. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, and then and then your other poem uh, that you know when um, uh, you know you think you're home, you think you belong, and then somebody calls you a white person. Oh um, yeah, from Blanche. Because <laughs> and, it's, and they know that and they know that you're not white, but they don't have another term that they can use to make that that distinction between themselves and women who are not of the same group. And so the only word that they have is femme blanche. But they know that you're not white. It's just that they don't have another word that they can use to describe you. And and I was married to a man from uh, the Ivory Coast. Okay. And, and I knew that despite being there and being married to him, I was never considered one of them, you know, I was, I was my, I was their brother, their son, their cousin, whatever, wife, and, and, and so I, I never had any illusions about being accepted as being one of them. They accepted me as his wife, which was wonderful, and, and my mother-in-law absolutely loved God rest her soul, and, and with my, with our child, be my daughter is named for both of her grandmothers on. My side, my mother, and for his mother, and so her name was um, uh, in their language. Um, my daughter was called my my mother-in-law always called my daughter a topa because in their in their language, which was Bete, it means daughter of or named for. She was named for her grandmother, so my daughter was called a topa. And my mother-in-law did not speak French, which is the official language in the Ivory Coast. She spoke Bete, and she only spoke a little bit of uh, French. And so we communicated mostly by smiles and everything. I loved my mother-in-law. She was the most wonderful person. And she called me Atokpana, which meant the mother of Atokpa, who was named for her. And and she would live with us, and we just... I loved having Mama in the house, and, and she passed on to my daughter the traditions of the Bete people. And I even did um, a videotape with my husband, my former husband, and he was the translator when she was explaining the origins of the Bete people and their whole culture because I wanted to give that to my daughter as her gift so that she would understand her culture, her background, her history, her legacy. Right. Yeah. Um, a couple of comments. So in that sense, so in that sense, yes, I was accepted. But there was never any question that I was not of that. You know, that it was not. And so it, it's simply that you you have to understand that you can't expect somebody to to welcome you in with open arms as being one of them. They understand that yes, you are related to them, but it's not that you are a part of them, but there is that relationship, and they do honor that. And and the, and the West Africans and North Africans South, from South Africa, because I've been to many parts of the continent, there is that recognition and acknowledgement that we are all descendants of Africa, but that we have gone our separate pathways. And, and again, these were enforced the enforced uh, the the forced migrations that we all had to go through. Yeah, I just wanted to comment that you know that that's really wonderful that your mother-in-law refused to learn the language of the colonizer. I think that's that's really wonderful. Um, and when 
when I was traveling, I haven't been to a lot of countries in Africa, but I've been to Senegal, um, Dakar, Rufus, and some of the other cities that are not far away from from Dakar, um, going toward Gambia. And I was, I've been to Gambia, and I've been to Haiti a couple of times, and I've been to Jamaica. Um, and uh, I found that with regards to, and I, and I do expect, uh, I do expect, because I, I've grown up as a Pan-Africanist, so I do expect when 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 African people see someone that hasn't been home in a while that they do embrace us as a part yeah. of the same community. Yeah. But but I understand that the Pan African notion is a a Western or African diaspora concept as opposed to a continental African concept. So when I go to Haiti, I'm Haitian. You know, when I yeah. go to Jamaica, I'm Haitian. I'm, I'm Jamaican. And I mm-hmm. presume that when you went to Panama, it must have been, you must have felt Panamanian and embraced because that's your home now. <laughs> <laughs> and and I wanted to let um, Marta um, sort of comment on that. I know you wanted to do another poem, but... I don't want. I want to make sure that we don't run out of time because we're in overtime now. But Marta, you know, as a person that, you know, truly Pan African in your heritage, <laughs> mm-hmm. uh, yeah, I wanted you. To, I wanted to give you an opportunity to comment on that as well as, as share something. I was looking at a couple of pieces uh, in your book, and uh, mm-hmm. I was looking at the one called um, about the short one that, that starts your book about uh, mm-hmm. forgotten stories. But then I saw another one that was really nice. It was almost like a poem. Um, in Panama, there is a plant. That was really yeah. pretty, too. Yeah. So, anyway, I just <laughs> wanted to mention those. But you, you can read whatever you like. But I want you to comment, okay. if you like, on that whole notion of the Pan-African diaspora and and, and also, you know, this linguistic um, barriers that we have. I mean, these aren't even our languages, but, <laughs> you know, we have these linguistic uh, obstacles that, so to keep us from being able to communicate. But luckily, you know, we do have our art. So even if one doesn't necessarily mm-hmm. understand the words, you know, um, I'm sure just the, the way that you read your work, uh, Faraha, you know, sort of carries some of the images and the uh, the meaning to an audience that might not know specifically what you're saying. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Definitely. I've, yeah, I've, my sense of things is that there's communication that goes beyond words. Um, You, you see it with artwork, you feel it with poetry. Poetry kind of rumbles. Like, I love the way Faraha (laughs) reads, because you feel it through your whole body, you know. Um, And, and, and then there, there are times when, I don't know if this has ever happened to you, but I, um, I traveled to Brazil at a certain point, and don't speak any Portuguese. Um, Spanish, I thought, was close enough to Portuguese that I could get by, and quickly found out that that's just not true. (laughs) But (laughs) there were certain people, I remember this one guy in particular, who could translate um, from Portuguese to Portuguese for me. There was, for some reason, I don't know if it was the region he was from or just that he and I could understand each other, Um, people would speak, and then he would look at me, and he would say the same thing, but I would understand him, and I wouldn't understand other people. Um, 
So I, I think there are moments in time um, that people are able to understand one another whether or not they are speaking the same language. And I think we all have that that um, ability. We see, we're born with it, which is how babies understand us. I mean, I've seen this miraculous process of it has to be telepathy um, that over the last, you know, 16 months I've been talking to this child in English, and my husband was talking to him in Spanish, and he now understands everything that we say and can say some of it back. Um, and he's understood everything that we've been saying for some time now. Now, poor poor guy that he's like, why, you know, I've had the same amount of time that you've had to get this together, and yet you people don't understand me. Um, <laughs> he's smarter than we are. So, um you know, I was I was listening to Faraha talking about her mother-in-law, um, and and my grandmother. Similarly, she you know grew up in Panama, was born actually in Panama, and never spoke Spanish. Um, she understood Spanish, but she never spoke it. Um, her children, half of them, grew up in the Canal Zone and were raised speaking primarily English at home, and the other half, who came later through a a system that had incorporated Spanish, were fully bilingual. So my dad was fully bilingual Spanish-English, but was spoken to in English at home. Um, And so he kind of speaks three languages because he speaks um, English, just plain, you know, almost American-sounding English. He speaks Spanish. And he speaks Patois, like he can uh, sound um, Jamaican when he speaks. And I understand, you know, Patois, but my accent is really pitiful if I try to sound sound Jamaican or Caribbean. Um, I um, speak Spanish fluently, and I speak English. And, you know, speaking Spanish fluently causes some confusion as I move about the world. And also my name being Marta Sanchez, because when people see that on paper, you know, they have certain expectations. And I've had people say to me, oh, I saw your name and I was expecting a Latina. And I've had to say, well, yes, here I am. Um, You know, because people have a very limited view of what a Latina looks like, forgetting that, you know, slaves, Slavery was all throughout, you know, Latin America um, and throughout, you know, English-speaking, French-speaking, and Spanish-speaking areas. Um, So brown people pretty much everywhere are speaking all kinds of different languages in this this world. Um, And, um, yeah, so that's been my experience. My experience has been very, very um, diverse around language and... I've had to, I, I think it was third grade when I gave up on um, picking just one box because I don't fit in one box. I decided that, you know, what I was, is it's not my problem. If people need me to be one particular thing, they can pick uh, whatever they need me to be. Uh, but I just am myself and I can, um, I connect with so many different people from, from different backgrounds. And I, I think it's been a real blessing to grow up in such a um, diverse uh, culture, because Panama is truly a melting pot, and race does not exist in the same way that it exists in the United States. Um, when people talk about color in Panama, they mean literally what you see. Um, so that a lot of Americans find that confusing when people say, no, they're not black, because they mean they're not black. They're not the color black. They don't mean that necessarily that they're, you know, um, dismissing any African heritage. What they mean is 
you know, I'm brown or I'm caramel or I'm, you know, um, the color of, of pine wood or I am, you know, I, I'm. there are so many different shades of brownness. And, and so race is, it's, it exists as a description. That doesn't mean there's no discrimination. That means that we don't fit in these clear-cut boxes. Um, so, yeah, I, I, um, I, how much time do I have to read? Something for you. Um, you know, I I don't know. I'm always surprised at how long they'll let me go over. So um, <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> yeah. So so pick one of your stories and share it with us. Okay. Share one. You All like. right. Um, I would like to read the story of the day that I met Faraha. Oh. Oh. Is that the book? Oh, that's so cool, Faraha. Yeah. How oh, <laughs> It's got. An Ancient House Built on Wheels Hmm. July 30th, 2007 This month, I had an art show called How to Find Love Without Losing Hope at Casa Gongora, the oldest house in Panama, built in 1756. The two-level mansion has high ceilings, a small courtyard, and long balconies, which wrap around the second-floor stretch of large double doors. The mayor's office restored the building and reserved it as a space to showcase Panamanian art and culture. Friday night was my closing reception and artist talk, and the first person to arrive was a student in his last year of architecture school. As we sat waiting for others to arrive, he asked, Do you feel that? What? I asked. The house is built on these little wheels, he replied. It was built to resist tremors, so it rolls, slightly, when the ground shakes in any way. When the cars or trucks pass, you can feel the floor shift. This new information explained the mild seasickness I felt at times in this building. On occasion, it felt like the world was tipping ever so slightly. People trickled in slowly, a majority of them arriving about 30 minutes late. It is expected, ora panamania, Panama time. In an effort to create an atmosphere that will allow for an open dialogue, centered on love, I stood in the center of the circle of chairs with a large bag of chocolate and wondered out loud. I brought chocolate, someone yelled, to bribe us. <laughs> Not to bribe you, but because it is said that it is the chemical equivalent of love and because it is interesting how if you meet someone and right away you give them chocolate, they are grateful, but if right away you give them love, they are sometimes terrified. I want to know what love means to you. Tell us a love story, or tell us that you believe or don't believe in love. Share your perception of love. This turned out to be a lovely time. The dialogue switched seamlessly back and forth between English and Spanish. I began by telling the story of two of my friends, Elvia and Marta, la otra Marta. It is a story of two leaps of faith and a journey to Austria to meet love. Cleveland spoke of healthy love the love that empowers you to create and build. A friend of Cleveland's explained that Cleveland and I knew each other when we met. He said we loved each other immediately because we've always known each other. Love, he exclaimed, bridges time and space and place. It is possible that all moments exist simultaneously, all things happening at once, and that you have known each other before and always. People began to speak of divine love, of self-love, of loving love. One young woman excitedly described why she loves love. Love is a word that is a verb and a noun. She listed all the things she loves loving. 
I love to dance love, to read love, to love. There was Lee Love who introduced herself and added, Really, that is my name. I married Mr. Love. And Lee's cousin, Vida, whose name means beloved in English and life in Spanish. They spoke about a love for travel, family love, loving each individual as they are, and never letting an opportunity pass to say, I love you. An older gentleman described falling in love with a woman who came to dress a wound on his back he couldn't reach. This woman, a stranger, a friend of friends, would gingerly change his bandages twice a day, first thing in the morning, last thing at night. Now, he steadily declared, we are married, and I would do anything for her. As my friend, who has a one-year-old son, began to speak, her eyes filled with tears. She reported that the intense love she can speak of is the one she is experiencing now, a parent's love, her parent's love for her, her love for her child. I cannot find the words to express the feeling of it, she said. My sister-in-law, who glows with self-love, described discovering its importance. She said, I learned the most about love when I was the furthest from it. When I moved to the States for school and I was away from everyone and everything I knew, everyone and everything I loved, two or three people were overwhelmed with the enormity of the question. Love is everything. It is immense. And it is all things, followed by shrugs and silence. My dad spoke of 30 years of marriage and recommended the experience of being a father. Meanwhile, my mom affirmed, I am learning more about love every day, and that is surprising. Love is surprising. A young woman spoke of finding love everywhere. I believe there is love in all creatures, she explained, and maybe even in some inanimate objects, like rocks. I can identify with rocks. For a long time, I was a rock, cold, distant, and unfeeling. But now, now I am a different person. A college student told the story of the day her father was kidnapped for two hours before returning to her family unharmed. From this experience, she asserted, I learned to love each moment and to never let a moment go by without appreciating the people around me. Hearing all these experiences and expressions of love reminded me that to love ourselves and others is a choice. It is a brave choice. For me, loving is a choice that empowers the negative experiences in my life. My ability to continue to love, to trust, and believe in people propels me beyond the reach of anyone who has tried to harm me. And the most magical part is this. I find myself part of a community of people who are unafraid to love me back. Our hearts are built on tiny little wheels, adapted to withstand heartache. It is not that we haven't experienced the turbulence of betrayal. It's just that we haven't let it shatter us. Essentially, we recycle love. Love flows in all directions, freely and abundantly, and we shift with the occasional disturbance, but we but are never rocked off our foundation. That is what love is. It is an ancient house built on wheels. Why, that's beautiful. That is just Thank you. (laughs) An ancient house built on wheels. Wow. Wow. That is so wonderful. 
And that's Thank when you, you met Faraha. <laughs> that is the right. day that I met Faraha. And Faraha, that is everything that was going on that you might not Absolutely. have understood, like half of it. <laughs> I felt it. I just felt it. I just was so happy to be there. Yeah. Thank you for being there, Faraha. And this, you know, the other place that you can find my work, you asked earlier, um, Wanda, is yes. I have some of my books, Beauty Unbalanced, at um, Sagrada, a beautiful bookstore and just, um, spiritual place that is located on Telegraph Avenue um, okay. in Temescal here in Oakland. Okay. Um, it's right near Telegraph and 51st, Sagrada okay. Books. Can you spell the name of the bookstore? Sagrada. Sagrada, S-A-G-R-A-D-A, and it means sacred in Spanish. So they have all sorts of little sacred things and healing things and um, <laughs> spiritual books, and it's just a really beautiful place to visit and just look mm-hmm. around, and the, the the owners are really wonderful. Um, uh, I just I love going in there, and Kalani, my son, loves going in there too because they have this fountain right in the middle of it and even a little corner for children. Oh, I used to go there to get my Kwanzaa stuff. They always have the candles and everything there for Kwanzaa. Oh, that's good to know. Because yeah. <laughs> it's always yeah. sometimes it's hard to find the candles. Yeah, they they have the yeah. candles, lots of green and red. They do. Mm-hmm. Oh, nice. Yeah, everything's sacred from all different traditions. Okay, and is Telegraph and what? Telegraph and Fifty First. Okay, yeah. sure. Okay. Yeah. Oh, excellent, excellent, super. Um, I was looking at your book, um, Marta, and I noticed that you also have a story that has snake imagery, uh, the snake charmer, and you also, in the same book, in the same story, you bring up the Mami Wata, and I love the Mami Wata. Yeah, so um, someone's wondering if you want to talk about that for a minute, and then, um, Faraha, I wanted to let you change the energy that you want to, and I was wondering if, if I could request Africa Is and then Night yes, Visions. that's the one that I was going to read. Are you serious? <laughs> you did this with me, Wanda, too. I had Rob Mark Nick Charmer to share as well. Yeah, because I wanted to leave that one. I didn't want to leave with just the image of the Rue de Saint-Franc. I, I have it right here. That's exactly what I wanted to read. Oh, that's funny. Well, why don't we let you do Africa is, and then uh, Martha, you can talk about the um, uh, the snake charmer imagery. Okay. okay. Africa is. Africa is burning rubbish, blazing sun, uneven pavement, rutted dirt alleys, dozing policemen, and aggressive beggars from Niger, dogging city streets. Africa is the taste of fresh palm wine. Coconut water, mangoes, the savory smell of poulet braise and alaco, the cries of acheke show, joined by the infectious thump of the talking drum. Africa is clacking scissors heralding the repairman, specializing in rips and tears. Next, a knife sharpener arrives, grinding stone carried high on his right shoulder. Africa is the laughter of children at play the chatter of women pounding banan or nyam into futu in villages where the houses wear bathtub rings of red dust. Africa is the rush to squeeze into a baka heading into a faraway village for a loved one's funeral. Africa is, above all, glorious sunsets of gold and magenta outlining imperial trees whose ancient eyes bore witness to human birth. Mm-hmm. So yes. beautiful. Do you want to just keep on going and, and do night visions? 
<laughs> well, you, what I would really like to do, if you wouldn't mind, because I loved what Masha <laughs> had to say about the whole love thing, and if I could just just do one from the last part of my poem, I would truly like to do it because it's about love. Oh, sure. And so if I, if I could end with that one, that would do that. That would be great. And if we have time, I still want night visions. Okay. <laughs> okay, all right. Okay, this one is, these are short. The ones in the last section, as as it explains in the foreword, are poems that I that were the result of, of paragraphs that I wrote thanking God and this man of my dreams for being in my life. And so anyway, this one is number 14. Some days are only bearable when I think of you and the love that we share. You are my anchor in a turbulent sea. You are my candle in unfamiliar darkness. Any thought of losing you terrifies me. I cannot breathe. I cannot think. I cannot speak. I am paralyzed. Then your gentle touch raises me again to the surface of your abiding love. Once more I see you. Once more I hold you. Once more we become one and push fear and anxiety back into the abyss from which they came. Once more, all is well, as I let go and let God guide us as we walk in harmony along life's beautiful path. Mm-hmm. <laughs> okay. So, Martha, do you want to um, respond to my comment about uh, your your piece, uh, Snake Charmer? Sure. And, and that image um, of, of the snake in the mommy water. Yeah, definitely. Can I can I read the one that you mentioned before first, since that's on the page oh. of of the love? Oh, um, which, which one I mentioned too? Which that's one? in Panama. <laughs> there's a plant. Oh yes, that's so nice. Yeah. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> in Panama, there is a plant. October eleventh, two thousand seven. In Panama, there is a small plant, often overlooked as it creeps through sidewalk cracks and nestles roads. It is my favorite green thing. This plant is sensitive. It fears touch, strangers, strange fingers or toes or rubber sneaker soles. Its leaves resemble palm tree fronds, and yet it does something no palm tree is capable of. At the slightest unwanted touch, this plant clamps shut, shielding itself from the world. I imagine this plant is open to rain, that it loves breeze, that its senses are fine-tuned to screen friends from foe. I imagine it knows when the threat is gone, that at that moment it reopens, stretching its green limbs to the sun. I've never seen the leaves reopen. I feel guilty now for playing with this plant I love, teasing it with branches and fingertips and shoe soles. This plan is a reflection of me. I've learned when to spring shut, when to shield my heart and soul to unwanted attention. Um, I'm sorry, unwanted touch, unsought attention, hostile energy. I've learned when I can miss the sun and hide in my own shade. I've learned to value those who don't trigger my fronds, startle my leaves, cramp me into the spaces where I feel unsafe. I know rain from fingers. Friend from foe. When my skin prickles, I know it's not the way the wind has blown. The man I love is breeze, sunlight. With him, my leaves lay open. His light gently caresses my leaves. 
I find no reason to be closed. With him my leaves they open. He does not toy with my uniqueness. He never teases my leaves to watch me spring shut. He does not push the edges of my boundaries. He does not creep near me or search for me between the cracks. He waits for me patiently. I reach for him with my open palms. He nurtures my open heart. Thank you. So your response to my question? <laughs> <laughs> so the snake charmer imagery, right? Yeah, uh-huh. Um, should I read snake charmer first and then talk a little bit about the imagery in it? Um, or do you want me to... Talk about it first. Talk and, about uh, it first. Okay. Yeah, uh-huh. yeah just... Um, so, just, yeah. Mm-hmm. so snake... Um, I, I think I think it's, there's a few things going on, right? So when we think of snakes, there's so many, um, I think, uh, religious references to snakes. You know, the snake tricks us, the snake is conniving, the snake slithers. So the snake is low to the ground, belly to the ground. Uh, we don't necessarily see it coming. Um, I think with, with violence, especially sexual violence, that that is that is what it's like. Um, we we think that we have a friend or often it's friends, loved ones, family members, people that are close to us that perpetrate perpetrate this violence. Um, and their biggest weapon is not a gun or a knife or, you know, they're not lurking in the bushes the way that people often portray it. They're often, um, their biggest weapon is, is trust. It's our love and our trust for them. Um, and so one minute you are safe and you're with a friend and the next minute um the snake has you. Um and you're you're really rendered um you, you know, you're unable to move. Um and so I wrote this piece called Snake Charmer sometime in April two thousand eight. Um addressing addressing that and um kind of um talking about this experience that I had that um, mixed um, a little bit of, I guess, religion and spirituality in a way that I, I didn't see coming either. Um, so, uh, uh, you want, would you like me to read Snake Charmer? Um, sure. Uh. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> in April, we visit Madison, Wisconsin, and I find myself charmed by snakes. They are everywhere. In a museum, I am drawn to images of them. One is a drawing of a woman on stilts with a snake wrapped around her leg. Later, I'm captivated by a snake documentary on TV. Then we are invited to a talk about Mami Wata. The cover slide summarizes the talk, referring to the image of a circus snake charmer who was transformed twice, first into an African goddess, then into a Caribbean saint. Early on, as we look at the photo of the snake charmer, full wavy hair parted in the middle, an uneasy rage begins to fill me. I suddenly feel an urge to leap from my seat and yell at the presenter in the room, you think you created me? I've always existed, always. Instead, I doodle in my sketchbook, disconcerted. The feeling and the I confuse me. Up until the last slide of the presentation, I watch the process, learning how the post of the snake charmer becomes the basis for the depictions of Mami Wata, the African goddess. And once Mami Wata arrives in the Caribbean, the brown-skinned saint is given a new name, Santa 
Marta. Mami Wata's history made me wonder about beliefs and the vessels they come in. What if women and girls were taught to see themselves as snake charmers, powerful, able to control their own destiny, strong and fearless even when surrounded by danger? Imagine being able to easily distinguish between your skin and the negativity and blame the snake constantly sheds. I really like the Mami Wata imagery, and I just think, you know, both of you uh, sharing your stories and poetry, and and uh, it's been a real healing uh, mm-hmm. energy that we've created uh, on, on this day that is so tragic uh, for so many families and so many people. I mean, there's so many people that never received a proper burial, people that are lost, you know, that mm-hmm. have never been recovered. Um, you know, so similar to other types of Holocaust that have affected our community. I mean, I think about Cote d'Ivoire, I mean, you know, where you were working for so many years, um, you know, Sister um, Faraha, and and then, you know, what happened when they had two presidents and all the bloodshed around that. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yes. Yeah. It was, it, it was hard because my former husband is of the same group as uh, uh, Laurent Guapo, who was the president that refused to, to give way. And, and that's, oh. that's, a whole, that's a whole other conversation, but what happened yes. is that um, in the area where he's from, which is in the west of the Cote d'Ivoire, which is where the Bete people are primarily located, um, they went into those areas. One of his sisters had to take refuge in a church. Uh, they were burning down their houses. They're, they're, they're you know, and beating people, and just, um, it was just, and it's just horrible, the stuff that happens mm-hmm. in Africa, and and that and that's in one of the poems, and when you get a chance to read it, uh, one that's called Unfinished Business, how we mm-hmm. become prey to predators who, who exacerbate the tensions that are there, and how we have not healed that, that thing about our being sold away from the continent. We have not healed that, and we need to have some sort of ceremony to cleanse that because our spirits, our ancestral spirits are calling for us to not to do atonement. We we really need to do that because that, 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 that's still there. That's still a very powerful feeling when you go, especially if you're going into Ghana in Elmina and places like that, the uh, Maison des Esclaves in, in Senegal. We have to do something about what happened to our ancestors. And until we do, I don't believe that we're going to really be successful as a people in the diaspora. I really believe we need to do a ceremony. Yeah, well, you know, we, we do do that. Um, not It's not international, you know, like so far as everyone is doing it, but we have we have quite a few um, here and the San Francisco Bay Area, we have the Ma'afa ritual and yeah, Ma'afa yeah, commemoration month in October. Yeah. Uh, in in um, uh, in Galveston, Texas, they have Caravan of the Ancestors uh, also in October. In uh, Philadelphia, they have Odun Day. That's in uh, June. Um, they were doing something in Seattle, Washington. They no, done things what, in what Southern I, California. Not, not, Excuse oh. me for interrupting. What I meant is it has to be done on the African continent. Oh, right, right. Okay, yeah. You know, in Africa, they do not as much, though, um, but they do have something, you know, the libations for the ancestors. That happens on Cape Coast and Cape Coast. Um, but, you know, it's really interesting because when I try to talk to uh, continental Africans about, 
you know, well, like what happened to us that are out here? Like, you know, we're we're from there, but we're out here now. A lot of times people don't want to address it because they think that we're going to blame them for our being in the diaspora or we're going to ask for something. You know, they're going to have to pay uh, as individuals <laughs> for something. It's like, well, you know, reparations are good, uh, but not personally. You know, we think of government. Mm-hmm. But just healing that, we need to, like, like you say, yeah. you know, have a ceremony. That would be so we wonderful. Do. And people underestimate the uh, the the real power of just having a harm acknowledged and being yes. able to voice that Absolutely. harm. I mean, it's just transform more transformative. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Mhm. Yeah. Yeah. Did, um, I I wanted to ask if you wanted me to read the forgotten stories that <laughs> short one at the beginning. Uh, sure, and uh, and then Faraha, if I can ask you to do the one um, night vis uh, night visions, and then I think well that'll be a wrap. We've got uh, nine minutes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> okay. Forgotten stories, May eighteenth, two thousand seven. Some people avoid short stories. They don't like the feeling that just as they're getting caught up, the moment is over. The new characters they've just met have moved on without them. They'll never know what provoked their next laugh or spilled their next tear. They'll never learn the words that next fell from their mouths. Unfortunately, my life exists only as a series of short stories. I stumble upon them like forgotten shoes in a hallway at the most unexpected of times. Once, there was a magical child. She created the entire universe from a button. Contrary to popular belief, the button was the first thing to ever exist beyond the girl. Yes, it has become a little thing, usually taken for granted as something that holds larger, more important things together. But originally, the button was bigger than this. The button was everything, and everything was the button. This original button is the reason why the place where the connection between mother and child occurs is called the belly button. The button is where all things began. The button is a mystery. Children often struggle to open their buttons. The button is a magician. It has been known for its disappearing acts. Buttons run off periodically. What no one seems to notice is that their disappearances occur in 2,000-minute increments. They escape to attend Button High School reunions, and when they return, all disoriented from the euphoria of old friends and the buzz of alcohol, they reappear in the most unpredictable places. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah, we have to remember those stories. All of them. Uh, <laughs> okay. Um, this one is called Night Visions, and this is one of the ones that did in this section on dancing lightly on the edges of African rhythms. Mm. Lying under voluminous mosquito netting, I listen to the African night whispering stories of love in an ancient tongue. Lying on an American bed which easily holds three, I dream of being held by one pair of arms. Above me, the white netting sags from hooks holding it in place, its folds copying those found in a wedding gown. Occasionally, moonlight reaches into my room. Its weightless fingers lightly caress me to dream. If piousness dominates my mood, I imagine that the beings of God smile, blessing me. Outside, the whispering fades, 
reluctantly giving way to the praise songs of birds and roosters, pausing to greet the dawn before they begin their morning search for food. I arise soon afterwards, filled with night visions that brighten my daylight hours. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's so beautiful. Well, I want to thank you both once again for for joining us on this, um, you know, Katrina commemoration, you know, for the victims and the survivors of, of this horrible, horrible um, disaster. Uh, some of it preventable. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Thank you and for for having us and for um, creating a space to to remember to honor those yes. victims. Yes, yes certainly, absolutely. Yeah, and and hopefully you know we'll have you on again. Uh, for uh, how long are you with us until you return to Panama? I'm leaving Wednesday night. Oh. I'm here until Wednesday night. <laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh! Really, really short. <laughs> yeah, it all it it just all came together. Every I think I believe that. Everything is in divine and perfect order. Oh, certainly, certainly. Yeah. Wow. Well, Martha, you're here, right? I am here, and if anyone <laughs> wants me to come and share with their community, I would love to come out, and I can be reached through my website. Mm-hmm. Give it to us again. It is www.poetryandart.org. So P O E T R Y A N D A R T dot O R G. And so you just click on either the English or the Spanish side, and you'll go right into my site. Mm-hmm. And I have a website as well. Yes. Mm-hmm. And mine is called Cat Eyed. It's www dot at cat eyed woman dot com. That's it. www cat eyed woman dot com. Okay. And there's and, and there's yeah and there's yeah cat woman dot com. <laughs> and so you can That's stay in touch um, when uh, our sister leaves this part of the Western uh, Hemisphere and moves, you know, further west. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, cool, super. Well, if I don't see you before you leave, Faraha, uh, um, you know, safe travels, and look forward to seeing you in Panama. I've never been there before. It's one of those well, places I've <laughs> always wanted to visit. Mi casa es su casa. Ah, super, super. <laughs> yeah, my my auntie married a man from Panama. And he was the blackest, most beautiful man I'd ever met in my life. Uncle Benny. <laughs> I was like, ooh, I've never seen a man that black before. That's when I was like, yeah. why? Did, why did, do he got a brother? <laughs> <laughs> that was a long time ago. That was back when I was like um, ten, seven, eight, nine, or ten. One of those two. Yeah, so, they, and Uncle Benny have, has has made his transition since then. Yeah. They are fine, honey. They are fine. We'll have another conversation one day where I can tell you about my experiences because they are fine. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, wonderful, wonderful. Well, we're going to end this wonderful conversation uh, with a piece called African Tapestry, um, uh, Prayer for a Continent. And it's um, Babatunde Leah's um, album, uh, Mbutu Weti, uh, which is a tribute to Leon Williams, wonderful tenor saxophonist. No, actually, I think yes. it's a wonderful vocalist who made his transition. Yes. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So I thought it would be a really great prayer for a continent. And so Absolutely. one can, whatever continent you're on, it could be a prayer for your continent. <laughs> all right, Thank you all take good care again. <laughs> you too, Lana. Okay, peace and blessings. You too, blessings. <laughs> peace.
Paraguayos.